episode of Shortbox Summary. I'm your host, George, joined again by Richard Fairgray. Richard, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's been a whole week since we talked about Hush. Yeah. I mean, how did I even survive? <laughs> it's been too long, so let's jump into it. Um, Hush. Sorry, Hush. there's sirens going past me. I'm sure that's, that's okay. <laughs> no, it's fine. it's fine. I remember living in LA and it was always like, oh, hey, it's 10 o'clock. It's weird not hearing a helicopter. Oh, wait, there it is. There's the helicopter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's amazing that any like, music gets recorded in the city when there's just fucking helicopters constantly. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. I never even thought about that. The amount of money they have to spend to soundproof. It's like, oh, let's record on Hollywood Boulevard. It's like, why? That's such a busy, loud, dumb street with all these weird German tourists just being like, oh, look at that stars. That's impressive. Yeah. Oh, I really enjoy walking along Hollywood Boulevard. And if there is a kid looking at one of the stars, I will say to them, isn't it amazing that they're buried right there? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, buried standing straight up to conserve space. That's why why it's a square and not not a rectangle. Man, that's pretty funny, though, because I remember there was a bar I love going to called 33 Taps, and mm-hmm. directly outside it was Mark Wahlberg's star. Wow. And so I would go out and smoke a cigarette and just, like, stand on top of Mark Wahlberg's star, and it was it was weird, because I'm like, really? Wahlberg? Like, Here's the one that really confuses me. Uh, Cheryl Hines has a star. And I know she's... I mean, she has a podcast... And she was on Curb Your Enthusiasm, but like Adam West couldn't get a star. Like, I, I there's, there's, and I know you pay for them. I know it's like twenty thousand dollars a year for upkeep or some crazy shit like that. But still, it's very, it just confuses me to no end. Also, Thirty Three Taps used to have the best buffalo pizza in the world, and then they stopped making it. So, oh man, I love that bar so much. When I was broke, I would go there because they had the most amazing happy hour deals, and they could actually eat hot food. It was it was incredible. That was how I felt about Pig and Whistle before it got revealed to be like the headquarters for a sex cult. Oh man, see the Pig and Whistle in San Francisco, not a sex sex cult. cult. No, but really good bangers and mash. I'm sorry, we did the thing again where we got distracted. Right, so, so it was the siren song. All right, Batman <laughs> six fourteen. What happened in that one? That's right. The the siren songs of Siren Strike again. Uh, so this is part two. Um, we talked about the first six issues of Hush in the last episode. Please go back and listen to that, so you are all caught up. Uh, but we are picking up here with the uh, the seventh chapter of Hush. It came out in Batman six fourteen on April thirtieth two thousand three, and that was by the amazing creative team of. Where did I write this down? Where did I write this down? Uh, written by Jeff Loeb, drawn by Jim Lee, inks by Scott Williams, colors by Alex Sinclair, letters by Richard Starkings. And this is a chapter called The Joke. Uh, fun fact, it was the number one selling book of the month, and it sold 153,000 copies. Wow. Does anything do that now? No. Okay. But they also right. don't really, re- they don't release numbers really anymore because of the split with digital and physical. Yeah. I think it's also that like with DC not going through diamond, there's no numbers there. And because of this like weird idea that people have the comics don't sell very well, it's because uh, bookstores use book scan and comic stores don't. So there's almost no record of what sells through actually comic stores anymore. That is a bummer. Um, Just because these numbers are impressive. Like it really feels like this was like the last hurrah. Like you think about this and like, Oh, it's iTunes. But people are still buying music, 
they're not Napstering anymore. You know, this is, and people were still buying DVDs. What's really weird to me is like, is it, like DC have the numbers. I was with a friend of mine when he got word that his book had crossed a hundred thousand. Um, and that was for, that was for the trade. Um, and like, he got like, like they literally called him the second it did. So they know mm-hmm. they just don't want to tell us anymore. I mean, it's I also weird we're now living in an age where like there used to be the rundown of how much people get paid per page and 90% of the companies, it was like $6 a page for art. And now the, those same size companies are like 250, 350. And it's only been like 250, 350. And it's only been like eight years. Yeah. I don't know. It's there's, weird because like, we've never had more data than ever, but there's also been, it feels like less transparency than ever. <laughs> well, I sort of feel like everyone got so shamed for not paying people which is and which is a good thing to shame people for. Don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but like the 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 balance has swung so far in the opposite direction um, that it's like I think it's the it's the thing that's going to start drawing people from the indie world back into mainstream, like back into wanting to be an artist for a big company, uh, which is going to cause another like total fracture. I think I don't know. These are predictions for five years from now. Let's talk about twenty years ago. <laughs> what happened in the joke? Batman sees Joker standing over his friend Tommy Elliot. Elliot is bleeding to death, and Joker holds a smoking gun. Without thinking, Batman leaps into action, immediately beating the Joker to hell. We see flashbacks of Joker hurting people close to Bruce, including when he shot Barbara Gordon, paralyzing her from the waist down, and when he beat Jason Todd nearly to death with a crowbar, and suddenly Batman starts hitting Joker even harder. When he can get a word in, Joker asserts his innocence, but Batman doesn't believe him. Harley approaches the two from behind with her signature giant mallet, but Batman dodges at the last second, making her accidentally break Joker's wrist, and Bruce is back to pummeling. Catwoman shows up, bloodied from her fight last issue with Harley, and wraps her whip around Bruce's neck, super hot, trying to stop him. Batman manages to knock her out, and Joker gets uh, almost gets away, but Batman hunts him down. Suddenly, an armed gunman appears behind Batman, ordering him to stop and firing warning shots. It's Jim Gordon, former commissioner of the Gotham City Police Department and Batman's friend and ally. After a heated discussion, Batman finally relents. Watching from a nearby rooftop, the bandaged man pulls out a scratched two-sided coin and says, he is innocent. Get the joke? Mm. That's the end of the issue. All right. A couple of questions. Why is Jim Gordon no longer commissioner? How did that happen? Uh, wasn't this after Batman Fugitive or Bruce Wayne Fugitive, Bruce Wayne Murderer? So oh, oh he, right. Okay. Wasn't he yeah. ousted after that? Right. Is he back to being commissioner now? Currently? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. To my, to my knowledge, yes. I don't like the idea of him not having uh, his cool job, you know, because I don't want to call him Jim Gordon. That's a terrible name. I want to call him Commissioner Gordon. Mm-hmm. That's, that's how I know him. Um <laughs> Yes, his his first name is Commissioner. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like I I think when you first learn about Batman, that's what you assume because you're a child and you don't know any better. Um, there, there's a there's a really strange thing happening in this issue. Uh, one, he gives a lot of reasons why Jim Gordon would want to kill the Joker, and only one reason why he personally would, and it, like. I don't know. The Joker watched uh, Jim Gordon watched the Joker kill his wife, and then he got tortured with being forced through a fucking funhouse with videos of his daughter being sexually assaulted after she'd been shot in the spine. Um, like, I feel like 
Batman is really talking himself up in this, being like, I'm so mad at Joker. I'm the one who's going to kill him because I'm the, he's done worse stuff to me. Let me list all the bad stuff he did to someone else. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a very kind of confusing story. Um, he, he shot my friend's daughter, sexually assaulted her, and he didn't say bless you when I sneezed. <laughs> <laughs> and and then there's this other strange thing where he, there's this one line that really bothered me where it's his internal monologue, but he's clearly talking directly to us because he says, Dick, Dick Grayson, Nightwing, he does this thing. And it's like, did you need to stop giving us this information? And it comes back to that thing we talked about last week, that this whole book is written for people who are vaguely familiar with Batman who are going to be jumping on. And I'll like after we finish talking about all of it, I'll talk about my theory on that a little because mm. I've been thinking about it all week. So there's that. There's also the uh, massive continuity error of, uh, of uh, Tommy Elliott bleeding, which will come up later. Mm -hmm. uh so, so just remember that and there's also like i don't know there's so many pieces that we are not that the reader knows that batman doesn't know at this point like if anyone's looking at this and not realizing that that's oh that scratched up coin i wonder who that guy is under the bandages it, it just all feels confused the more i read through this this second half by the way much more text it like I read the first six last week and it was very kind of free flowing and fun. There were problems, but it was, it was a quick read. Pretty this breezy, week I'm reading, yeah. I was, I was like, I was counting how many pages I had left constantly. We're recording an hour and a half later than we were supposed to. Part of that is because I'm still a little hungover from being in a space last night with Richard and other people. But another part of that is uh man, this book, you're right. The second half reads so much slower because everything is explained, mm -hmm. especially in like the last three issues. Yeah. And um, it really picks up here. And there's like a recurring thought, I guess, that that Bruce has or Batman has, sorry, uh, in this issue in particular, where he's again trying to like justify what he's doing to the Joker. And he says these lines. And I tell myself that Barbara would understand what I have to do tonight. Uh, when he's like trying to stop Catwoman, he knocks her out. Her bullet wound makes her vulnerable and I exploit it. Oh, and I tell man. myself she will understand someday. That was that was a lot. lot and then there's one more too. Jim Gordon with all he's lost, I thought he'd understand. Like it's just like Bruce failing to like see the people around him in any other way than how he would be in like the world. And, you know, Catwoman keeps talking to him about how many strings he has. Um, and she never mentions herself as one. And then she literally whips him around the neck in a very, like, visual, like a nice visual metaphor of making herself a string that can hold on to him. Like, whether it's ever said or not, she is she is criticizing him verbally for being so attached when he pretends he isn't, but mm -hmm. she is also showing him physically that these are the things that stop him from becoming a monster. And mm -hmm. I think like that is really nice. And it's really nice because it doesn't get directly mentioned. Also the way his neck muscles pop. That's why I said it was hot, you know, <laughs> going back to like those old forties, uh, bondage yeah. <laughs> wonder woman covers. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but no, that the the like knowing that her bullet wound would hurt her, and then smacking her there as he tries to figure out if he loved. This was a very good time for uh, 
women's roles in comic books, shall we say? Uh, yeah, for sure. This was, I think, probably not that we're past it, but this was probably peak eye candy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But the fact that it was like more refined than it was in the 90s, it tried to make you feel less guilty about it. But like compared to today, it's still like, Jesus, man, like that's a lot of ass that probably didn't need to be yeah. propped up front and center. Yeah, especially because a lot of the like sexualizing of the characters is happening while they're being beaten up. That's that's a very uh, that's a very unsettling thing that was very normalized in comics at that point. Yeah. There's there's one play I really like this one baseball player named Manny Ramirez. Uh he's an outfielder. And there's one play where he like was running up to the back wall and like jumped up the back wall and like caught the ball and the play was still going on, but because of who he was, he like took a second up there on the wall and like gave someone in the stands like a high five before jumping back down to the field and getting back to the play. And it kind of feels like that where it's just like, hey, I'm gonna do this incredible acrobatic routine. And uh, do like a cartwheel kick and, and whip this person's ass. But uh, I'm also going to like really make sure to frame my cleavage perfectly while I do it. Like, it's just like such like a, a weird indulgence that like really only appeals to teenage George and other other teenagers who were reading this book. Um, and like, yeah, reading it now, it is kind of just like garish and off-putting where it's just like, oh man, like the utilitarianism that you guys always spout about is just kind of being wasted in how you're presenting the story. Like the words are saying one thing and the art is serving something else. This is also the point. Uh, this is the tipping point of the story where people start having fights where they deliver a sentence one word at a time. And the final word of the sentence, they yell as they do a punch. And that feels like a, a really bad way to signpost when you're going to punch someone. <laughs> like I feel like, oh, oh, you're building up one sentence at a time. No, I think I can absolutely tell when the, the final move is going to come. I'm probably going to duck as as that happens. Yeah, but you can't always know because sometimes it's done with narration, right? Where it's just like, oh, man, he's writing one sentence at a time. Everything's ending in an ellipses. Oh, we're building to something. And then that's when the punch comes. Well, that's usually when he jumps somewhere. It's the like, um, Batman, I certainly hope you. <laughs> um, also, the weird thing where I think there's a couple of times in this half of the story where someone tries to say the word mother and gets hit during it and goes mother. <laughs> <laughs> which i don't i don't know i feel like you can do that once is is that in uh octopus a memoir of flailing <laughs> <laughs> i don't think my mother gets mentioned in that book maybe that's why she didn't buy a copy yeah <laughs> i'll buy another one don't worry <laughs> you really don't need to do that <laughs> just, i'll just send her one and be like just look have it on your shelf supportive parent uh, there's a couple of nice lines from Jim at the end. Uh, I may no longer carry a badge, but I still believe in the policeman's oath to protect and serve. All I can do is appeal to you through our friendship. I wouldn't let you do this when you shot my daughter, killed my wife. I don't know how I could stop you, but I won't let you throw your life away. And Batman says, how many more lives are we going to let him ruin? Jim says, I don't care. I won't let him ruin yours. Yeah. With uh, some of the worst drawing of rain in the background of a panel I've ever seen, uh, that line is delivered and it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Ready to move yeah. on to uh, yeah. 615? Yeah, absolutely. May 28th, 2003. It was the number two selling book of the month. 143,000 copies sold. The book that outsold it was Wolverine number one, which I believe is Greg Rucka. And uh -huh. uh, I think your buddy, Derek Robertson. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Is that was that the Wolverine that had that? There was one Wolverine that had like a really good cover, or the cover that everyone liked, where it was just like plain white and him leaning in from the side, kind of like touching his chin with his claw. That was Astonishing X Men. Oh, I want right. to say seventeen. That was a John Cassidy cover. Right. That that was around that time, right? It's... A few years later, like two years later. Okay. That that's these were like no, the it's... Assad Ribic painted covers. Oh, okay. Yeah, I remember these. Okay, so that that explains why that one sold very well. Also, people like Wolverine. Yeah, and it was a new Wolverine number one. His old 90s series or 80s series had finally come to an end, and that was a pretty good series. That that first first arc was good. This is before Wolverine has, like, become a lovable family-friendly character through the movies, so he's still just kind of like a creep. Oh, for sure, yeah. He just looks dirty and dingy in this first arc, and... Mm. Uh, real scumbag energy. Mm, mm. Miss that. Yeah, thanks Hugh Jackman for ruining everything with your pretty face and six foot four frame, you jackass. <laughs> <sighs> this chapter is called The Dead. Uh, Bruce Wayne is delivering a eulogy at the funeral for his friend and life-saving surgeon Thomas Elliot. Tim Drake, the current Robin, Dick Grayson, the first Robin and current Nightwing, Dr. Leslie Tompkins, and Selina Kyle, Catwoman, are all in attendance as civilians. Later in the Batcave, Batman is running through Elliot's autopsy report when Nightwing shows up and brings a little levity. Batman informs Dick that the Joker didn't kill Tommy and that uh, he's involved in a larger conspiracy, including Killer Croc, Catwoman, Poison Ivy, Harley Quinn, the Joker, and even Superman. Oracle calls and makes a faintly homophobic joke about male bonding, and then Bruce makes a faintly misogynistic joke about Dick and Barbara sleeping together before they go after a Riddler that just hijacked an armored car with $11 million in cash. They choose a Batmobile and head into the city. Nightwing tries to convince Batman to reveal his identity Catwoman that she seems to make him happy just before Batman pancakes the armored car. A fight breaks out between Riddler's goons and the two heroes, and before long, Riddler escapes through the sewer, but Batman catches up with him answers his dumb riddle and thinks his routine is boring uh, and thinks Edward Nygma is not the man he used to be. Batman does a scan of the armored car and finds traces of ash from a Lazarus pit, an ancient mystical pool of liquid that can bring people back from the dead and is often used by Raz al Ghul, an eco-terrorist enemy from his rogues gallery. Elsewhere, Joker gets busted out of Arkham by the Bandage Man and Batman tracks down Catwoman. In symmetrical panels over two pages, the Bandage Man reveals himself to be Harvey Dent, cured of his two-face affliction, and Batman reveals himself to Catwoman as Bruce Wayne. Okay. Let's talk about the riddle. Okay. Uh, (laughs) I think I said last week that if I ever did get to write a Batman story, which I don't want to do, all it would be would be the Riddler wandering through Gotham coming up with good riddles. And I think now more than ever that is needed because this is the worst fucking riddle. It's it's absolutely nothing. This is like riddles.com level of crowdsourced nonsense. Um, George, do you have the actual wording of the riddle in front of you? Uh, what's worth $11 million in flies, I think, was it's, the it's riddle. What has four wheels is worth $11 million in flies. And the answer is... A gold plane. So, like, this doesn't feel like a riddle as much as just a dumb sentence a six-year-old says. Like, am I am I wrong? Yeah, because it's like, if the Riddler's riddles are what is a combination of things that could be put together to be this, there could be 50 answers to this. Mm-hmm. Like, also, planes don't have four wheels. That's stupid. Um, so Batman's answer is incredibly wrong. 
every, I, I don't know, just just the Ridley is this incredibly clever character, and it's something that just like feels like said, okay, we'll fill in a good riddle later. The thing about the Riddler in the animated series is his riddles are uh they're good. Like, I mean, there's no such thing as a good riddle, I guess, but Oh wait! No, sorry, it, it wasn't. A, sorry, it wasn't a gold plane. Um, it was a solid gold garbage truck. Solid gold garbage truck. Sorry, that actually. Yep. Sorry, I forgot. I was trying to remember what the flies part was. It's five, been hours since five percent. Five percent better, but not great. Yeah, it's not because it could. It could be so many other things. Um, and it, okay, that that fixes the four wheel problem. Also, garbage trucks don't have four wheels. They always have more because the, the, the big trailer part on them. Come on, yeah, they, they're rocking dualies in the back. Yeah, riddles are meant to have I don't know a twist to them or something or some kind of like they should function like cryptic crossword clues. This is I lazy mean, writing. I'm mad about it, but that's I mean, not the most important part. It's 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 bad, but I think it's bad on purpose, right? Like because it's talk. He's talking about like how Edward Nigba has become routine and trite and like isn't trying as hard as he used to. He's saying like the magic's gone a little bit and like what well, we, we know why, cause we finished the book and we'll get to that in a little bit, but I think it is meant to, to tie, to tie into that. Cause like, it was just like a kid's idea of a good riddle, you know? Sure. Except that Batman delivers the answer as if it's like so obvious. Cause Batman is such a smarty pants mm-hmm. and there could be a thousand answers. Batman could have said literally anything there that fit those three criteria. It's it's not a like he doesn't look smart for doing it. He doesn't look like the hero who can defeat the Riddler with his mind. He looks like a guy who does a bunch of punching, mm-hmm. and that is what he does consistently through this book while thinking a lot to himself about uh, just renaming characters over and over again to make sure we're familiar with who they are, constantly switching back and forth between code names and, and civilian names in his head in a way that Batman has never ever done before, or has, well, I mean, probably has done before. There's plenty of bad writing in the world, but has never, like, it's always sort of made a point of that Batman calls himself Batman in his head. Batman only thinks of people in, like, he thinks of people as separate entities when they're in costume or out. Mm-hmm. And here he literally, thinking to himself, thinks, Dick, Dick Grayson, Nightwing. Like, stop it. Uh, is this, this is also another point in the story, I think, where where Catwoman re- like, refers to herself as an actual cat, saying things like, well, cats can see in the dark. And oh, that, that's later in the cave, but like, you know, like uh, there's e- there's a point in the story where she literally goes meow at someone yeah. as an answer. This was 2003. This is the peak of um, people hating furries as a <laughs> as a default. And the reason that everyone hated furries, the th- thing that people would always come back to, was like because they act like the animals when they're in the costumes, and that's annoying at conventions. I'm not. I'm not getting into whether I hate furries or not. That's not the point. But the, but the point is, this was the time when furries were the butt of every joke in the comic community. Mm-hmm. And the only difference here is that Catwoman has never called herself a furry because she's just wearing skin tight stuff and making herself look sexy or. Jim Lee is making her look sexy in, in weird ways while being beaten up and punched in her bullet wound. Um, but she is behaving like a cat. And we're meant to be like, oh, I guess Batman's in love with that. That's the worst. <laughs> That's the worst thing. 
Can you imagine if you're like, I'm going to go talk to that person at a party and they were like, hang on, I'm going to push some stuff off a table because I'm such a silly billy cat person. I thought for sure you're going to say people hated furries because of that episode of Entourage where <laughs> uh, what's his name? Turtle dresses up like a furry to fuck a girl because she's a furry. I thought you were like, yeah, and that was like the real downfall of, of furries in the public eye. And then second of all, Batman has that moment, right? That's like referenced a lot where it's like, I shall become a bat, right? Mm-hmm. To my mm-hmm. knowledge, there hasn't been a Catwoman moment where she's like, I shall become a cat. And so it's weird, well, especially because there's like a cheetah or whatever, right? Who is like an actual cat-human yeah. hybrid. Dr. Minerva or whatever her name is, like the Wonder Woman villain. And like Catwoman is acting as catty as that person is who has reason, I guess, to be more cat-like in, in her yeah. uh, personality. I mean, I, I guess like this again is that thing of like we're, we're we're making a batman story for an audience that are familiar with it from other media we all know that catwoman got her special cat powers in the movie catwoman so that she got really good at uh, motorcycles and basketball like cats are mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so like maybe there was was the catwoman movie out by this point it was not but we still had uh michelle pfeiffer's catwoman who was also oh, brought back to life in like a kind of mystical cat like way I never understood how that happened. Like, she fell out a window and some cats came over to her, and I guess now, I don't know, she has, she she sort of, I, I just thought she really liked cats. They introduced magic in that movie, and it, no one blinked an eye. It was kind of amazing. Yeah. I don't know what else you'd call 40 cats breathing on a dead woman and bringing her back to life, if not magic. <laughs> it's just sleepwalkers. It's all just sleepwalkers. I had such a such a clerk's moment during this issue because like that whole like you have any idea how many contractors probably died on the death star kind of deal um Mm -hmm. but just like when dick and and bruce are like in the back cave they're like which batmobile should we take they show like this amazing apparatus that's basically like a a vending machine right where they've got Mm -hmm. eight different uh batmobiles lined up on like a carousel almost and then there's like another set and another set behind so there's dozens of cars here and I'm just like, look, there's no way that's up to code. Like, you, you, there's no way that that's, like, legally clearing. I don't know, like, who could have built this? Is there, like, a secret, like, Army Corps of Engineer for superheroes? I really did go down that rabbit hole, and that's when I realized, like, wow, I might still be drunk from last night as I was reading that, because I'm like, this isn't important. But it is kind of amazing how, like, Jim Lee, with this issue, painted, like, a holy shit moment of the Batcave. And then mm-hmm. in uh, All-Star Batman and Robin the Boy Wonder... Uh, did like that giant six page spread and so Jim Lee has mm-hmm. kind of just become like the de facto Batcave architect for the decade yeah I actually I I had mixed up in my as I was reading I was getting really excited for that moment that's actually in All-Star Batman and Robin where they're about to reveal the new Batmobile I love that little moment where it's like they're almost looking directly at the readers and saying we're gonna pull this drop cloth off next month just wait <laughs> <laughs> I like I look I I I know that there's a lot there's too much meta storytelling and what have you but like little nods like that I I actually still really enjoy because I am a big nerd mm-hmm. who who wants to buy toys. <laughs> I get how it. cold do you think the Batcave is? I feel like it should be colder than it is, but he he's like thankfully it's built over a geo geothermal pit. It's like come on man, like this is so you're it was it was destiny that you became Batman. 
Um, but I think it should be like cold and mildewy, right? Like a little mm. should be damp. Always got to worry about black mold up in the up in the rafters. I, I really like. There are points in this book where I have real problems with the art and the visual storytelling, but the stuff in the cave just looks beautiful. It's it's phenomenal stuff. Like Jim Lee, he can do that so well and so much better than anyone else I can think of. That and you said the the bottom side of a boot, right? Well. Yes, as long as we're not looking at any other part of the boot, he does draw the bottom of a boot very well. It's funny. There's a kick later where I'm like, that boot doesn't make sense. But it's okay. We'll we'll, we'll get there. I know the kick you mean. I think it makes more sense than the cover. And there's also that other kick where it looks like it's it's you're not seeing the boot. You're just seeing. I think it's I think it's Nightwing or maybe it's as someone's leg is going like straight up in front of you. And if you follow the leg down, it sort of seems to connect about. 10 inches below the beginning of the leg. That's not how bodies generally work. No, no, okay. no, not generally. But I mean, maybe he's got one of them special broken legs. <laughs> Batman 616 chapter called the assassins came out June 25th, 2003. It was a number one selling book with 142,000 copies sold. A LexCorp private jet takes off from Metropolis, and right behind it is the Batwing, Batman's nearly stealth plane. He fires a harpoon from his jet uh, to the LexCorp plane and zip lines over, opening the side door to the main cabin while Oracle jams their distress call. Once inside, Batman takes out the armed guards with ease and escapes by parachute with his target, Talia al Ghul. Lex Luthor, President of the United States, is informed that Talia has been kidnapped and Batman is responsible. He has a twinkle in his eyes saying he doesn't want to do anything yet. Batman leaves Talia someplace hidden and safe and returns to the Batcave, where he finds one of the dueling swords of Ra's al Ghul stuck in his Bat computer. He immediately panics, concerned that Alfred has been kidnapped or hurt in response, but he's all good, and the two talk about what Bruce would be leaving unprotected by accepting Ra's challenge to a duel. At Jim Gordon's home, a now unbandaged Harvey Dent reveals himself, along with the revelation that Joker is innocent. Once tracing is done on the bullet that killed Tommy, they'll find that it's the old service pistol that Gordon turned in when he retired, implicating him. In North Africa, Batman and Roz duel to the death. Bruce, sorry, Bruce is fighting more aggressively, more like Roswood. Back in Gotham, Catwoman is guarding a tied-up Talia, and the two are awkwardly talking about Bruce. Suddenly, Lady Shiva, one of the DC Universe's most deadly assassins, drops in and starts kicking Catwoman's ass. Batman manages to stop Roz with a sword through the chest, and Batman is given a clue by defeated Roz. He probably didn't need to go to Africa for, but he says, <laughs> ask yourself, detective, who in your life would wish to come back to life from the dead? It's like, really? It's like a 16-hour flight, but okay. That's yeah. Fine. Like, how long is this book meant to take place over? They actually do a pretty good job of it. They're like days. It takes Oracle days to to find the person, but we managed to get a meeting. Like they do a good job of saying days go by. It's been a week. Like they do that more than I've noticed in more current Batman stories. But so Talia was uh, tied up to a computer chair, um, like just a, a really standard office chair that we all know have sharp bits on the back for getting ropes mm -hmm. off your hands for long enough for Batman to go to Africa. Track yeah. down, track down his old friend in the middle of the desert and have mm -hmm. a fight, and come I mean, back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I also will say I had to like go back and forth several times in this, being like, "Is who is that tied to the chair?" Because it like the character design shifts so wildly between her and getting out of the airplane to her being in that chair. 
Yeah, it kind of just seems like Jim Lee has like a default, like, okay, I just got to draw someone hot. It doesn't have to look the same. It just has to be vaguely hot in each panel. We'll change the hairstyle, the hair color. It doesn't matter. She's tied to a chair and eventually her name will get said. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of her name, Lady Shiva is about to kill Catwoman when Talia frees herself and breaks a chair over the assassin's head. Bruce returns to find an injured Catwoman protected by Talia who kisses Bruce goodbye. That's the end of the issue. Um, Yeah, you're right. That is incredibly strange. Like the timing of it all doesn't make sense. And this is something I don't want to say like it breaks the story for me, but it's definitely something I think about. Like, I don't understand why they couldn't have fought outside of Gotham, like in in some county right well it's it's like when you think about uh in dark knight rises where uh he is in a big hole that is like watching a a tv with a uhf aerial i have to assume based on the static Mm -hmm. and somehow is getting like local gotham news so he must be within walking i mean he walks back to gotham so like hey we have this major city just outside a real deep hole full of prisoners you know, it's it's unless he's traveling for literal days and we just don't need to see the detective work that he's doing to, like, find airplanes or whatever. I don't understand why uh, why we need to make these big leaps. Yeah, it could have happened. It could have happened in Gotham. It could have been like, oh, I just realized he's in Gotham because, like, he's tracking his daughter down or something. That's why she was also in Gotham in her mm-hmm. LexCorp plane. Like, there's so many very simple single sentences that would have made all of that feel better. The most egregious example I can think of is a movie called um, Draft Day, which is like a Kevin Costner football movie where he's the general manager of a football team. And like the owners in New York where he's expecting one player to be drafted and then Kevin Costner calls in a different player to be drafted. And so like they got the first pick and I think they have like the seventh pick and it's 10 minutes between each pick. And so somehow the owner of this football team manages to get from like Madison Square Garden where the draft is being held back to Cleveland within like 40 minutes and it's like even if there's a helicopter on the top of the building that flies directly to the tarmac like like just doing all the math like it just doesn't make like why'd you do it this way it didn't have to be like this but you set it up and now you set it up so poorly like i have to examine the apparatus that you built to hold this shitty concept together it should have just been done outside of gotham but i get like this does feel like nitpicking because how much cooler is it that batman is fighting in sand dunes in northern africa where he stabs Ra's al Ghul and then 15 people with guns emerge from the sand to like stop Bruce from, from killing him or whatever. Then just like, Oh, I'm in uh Wiscasset County, just outside of Gotham County. It's a broken down is, trailer, you know, is it cooler or is it, we need to give Jim Lee more time to draw that sick ass bat cave. So let's give him like, some very basic like i'm drawing a book at the moment that's all set in sand it takes me about an hour a page compared to like four hours if i had them indoors like i'm not comparing my art to jim lee but certainly sand is faster than you know details that's uh that's fair i hadn't considered that i think it's cooler maybe not to see it because you're right like it does look really bare even though like it it technically fits the story but it sounds cooler when like we're talking about it without the visuals right no oh okay my bad no i I think it sounds very dumb that batman flew to north africa i think that like gotham is such an incredibly like rich and interesting environment for for things with so, so much variation like we know that there are docks we know that there are uh, like sort of farmland 
upstate New York style, you know, we know there's this, we know there's caves everywhere. We know there's secret tunnels. And we also know that like, I, I mean, you just said in a trailer somewhere, imagine, imagine that exact like setting. If you like how far he had fallen, if he was like looking for his daughter, trying to track down who has been using the Lazarus pit. And he's at a point of absolute desperation, this immortal man mm-hmm. who has ended up like in a trailer in the middle of kind of nowhere on the, just outside the city limits. That would be beautiful. Okay. That's a that fair point. Such a cool picture. That's a fair point. I think it does add to the scale of the story, just being like, oh, this is a globe trotting adventure. Like, I need to track down these answers no matter where they take me. I just think it's so lame that, like, the. I wish he got more information or, like, a better clue because it was just <laughs> like, ask yourself, detective, who in your life would wish to come back from the dead? It's like, Oh, yeah, that is what the Lazarus Pit is for. Let's talk about motives. Who has motives to come back from the dead? And it's like... Dead people. Oh, yeah, man. it's like I probably didn't need to book that ticket on Moroccan Air to to get here. Do you think he flew a uh, commercial, or do you think he no. took a, a bat plane? No, I don't think he flew... I, I mean, maybe... We never saw this, but, like, he has to have something, right? Like, I, I don't know if they have, like, the teleporting of the, the Justice League satellite, if that's still a thing. But, mm. like, he has to have some supersonic jet that would make it, like, an hour to get there. Otherwise, yeah, it just doesn't make sense. I, I do agree with your idea, though, that it's so much more interesting to make Ra's al Ghul desperate yeah. than it is to make Bruce Wayne, I guess, capable in this sense, right? Yeah. He, well, I mean, we also don't know how he found him. And that could have been interesting. Mm-hmm. After this issue, there's a brief, I want to say, six to eight page interlude called The Cave. Was this in your trade paperback? Yeah, it was. I was expecting this. This is the one part that I'd never read before. And I was expecting it to be something like earth shattering that would change my perception of the whole book. And instead, it was just like a teaser for things that will be rehashed in the next issue. <laughs> Yeah, it really doesn't feel that different than the beginning of the next issue. It's basically all it does is give like a conversation between uh, Selena and Alfred, which we don't really have time for, I guess, in the next issue. But there's like kind of a sweet moment where Catwoman confronts Alfred and she's like, you don't think very much of me, do you? And he's like, quite the contrary. I think the world of you. And though he'll never admit it, so does he. And it's like literally just him being a fucking wingman for Bruce. Yes, and that bit is great, and it almost makes up for the bit where he says, you know what would really hurt him? A broken heart. (laughs) Fucking clunky bullshit. Oh, I forgot to say, in the previous issue, there is that really, really dated line where uh, where they're fighting, and he says, like, what, you know, and Batman's thinking, like, I've got to fight like Tommy Elliot, played that weird game we used to play, and think like Mm -hmm. my enemy, and then uh, Rachel Gould says back to him, um, it's like, what happened to your, what happened to your American way of not, uh, not being the aggressor or like not making the first move or something. And it's like, is that the American way? Yeah, is this is thing? like, the uh, U S definitely had troops in Iraq that, at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like we, it's, it's a pretty, it's pretty well known that America will, uh, I'm not going to say make unprovoked moves, but certainly we'll be like, we're going to land the first punch. I think the polite way is to say they bluster into... (laughs) Yeah. Bluster their way into situations they probably didn't have to. (laughs) Uh, Agreed, that does feel weird. Um, 
brief time out. So far, do you get like a a real sense of any of these villains that we've seen? Like we basically had like a different villain each issue, right? Or like a different challenge presented by these villains each issue. And like it doesn't really feel like ah, fuck, I I might have jumped the gun a little bit. It just it doesn't really feel like Jeff Loeb's characterization of these people is anything more than just like the most generic basic understanding of them yeah there's nothing insightful it's all kind of stereotypical of them you know how there are those people who have like really thick books about everything in the dc universe and then there are like the kid-friendly versions where it's like a couple of pictures and a paragraph about each one Mm -hmm. or like you know and you know what it is it feels like uh it feels like Jim Lee has a, cr- a collection of really cool trading cards with some basic stats on the back that he is referencing for every every page. And Batman is describing that to us so that we don't have to see the villains do any of their stuff in their villainous ways. Because, like, you know, you're absolutely right. Like, the Joker's not doing anything Jokerish. He doesn't have a big plan. Uh, Harley doesn't have a big plan other than, like, show up to the opera, I guess, because you know clown themed um yeah she she has a hammer yeah 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 like you know, two-face does nothing significant uh at this point um uh, yeah no you're you're absolutely right it like none of this feels like <sighs> a good batman story is when you have six issues of one villain who is figuring out something or doing some new take on their usual thing it's always interesting when the villain has changed their motives and Batman has to figure out why. And usually that can be because of another villain being like responsible for it. And it's, it's, it's a structure and it's a basic structure, but this feels like that structure is being done every 20 pages for us. And it never feels satisfying. Yeah. It, it's, it, it's moving a little bit too breezy, which I appreciate. Like how many movies do you watch that are like two and a half hours. It's like, well, this if this were 45 minutes shorter, it would probably be pretty good. Um, on the other hand, I do like how fast paced it is, but it is, it, it's like if, if a hole could be like a, a mile long or an inch deep or an inch long and a mile deep, like we know which one this is. Like this is yeah. just a, su- such a shallow exploration of a, a bunch of things. But again, like I think it's a great like, appetizer to to other batman stories but uh I'll, I'll save that for the end of the pod uh are you ready to move on to chapter 10 yeah let's get into this cave again yeah uh batman 617 wait did i label these correctly uh batman 617 uh came out july 30th 2003 it was a number one selling book with 146,000 sold it is called the grave Bruce has let Catwoman into his life, which means also letting her into his cave. Does that sound dirty? Mm-hmm. Hungover George thought it sounded kind of dirty. <laughs> the two are lightly working on the case when Catwoman notices something in the shadows and strikes at Robin. The two fight awkwardly for Bruce's affection and attention, arguing about who can be trusted and what can actually be said about the other person. It's incredibly awkward, especially one line where Selena asserts that Batman is acting like Tim's father a little too much. Bummed out by the buzzkill wonder, Catwoman takes a motorcycle and hits a town. Once she's gone, it's revealed that Tim was being a dickhead on purpose. While out in the city, Catwoman is cut off by Huntress, who isn't making sense or acting like herself. She seems crazed, and the two start fighting, and we see why. According to the Huntress's perspective, she isn't fighting Catwoman. She's fighting a former version of herself from a more violent and headstrong past. 
Batman and Tim are watching from a nearby rooftop and Bruce immediately recognizes the symptoms of how she's acting and leaps into action. He tells Tim to keep an eye out, not for a what, but who. Immediately afterwards, Tim is punched out by the bandaged man who calls Tim a pretender in a whisper. The one responsible for Huntress's spell with dizziness appears and it's Dr. Jonathan Crane, a.k.a. Scarecrow. There's a fist fight of epic proportions punctuated by the insanity of Scarecrow singing a lullaby, Hush Little Baby. Confused why Batman isn't reacting to his fear toxin, he deduces that he's already under the spell of another. Just then, a batarang cuts Crane's face, and Batman turns around to see the bandage man holding a defeated Tim, still referring to him as a pretender. He takes the bandages off his face and reveals his identity. He's Jason Todd, the second Robin who's been dead for years. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Batman is an abusive monster, and Catwoman needs to get the fuck away from him. Every single thing about this issue is like... He... He gets a kid to beat her up like so that he can manipulate her like he brings her into the cave says he trusts her says like let's do this let's have a real relationship let's let's be together let's almost kiss again because that's how it usually works and then oh no my 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 uh sort of son is beating the shit out of you and i'm just gonna stand and watch and then it turns out to all be a fucking manipulation because of his like weird issues. Um, yeah, it, like he sucks. He just completely sucks. I think it's really interesting what what comics are like asking you to do, right? Like you watch Doctor Who, right? Yeah. All right. That that first Matt Smith episode where he like falls into um, what's her nuts's yard and. Uh, Amy's yard and she's like a child right Mm -hmm. like it should have been really creepy right like here's a grown man making a seven or eight year old girl cook fish sticks and custard for him right but there's nothing like sinister or ominous about it and I I put that like down to I guess Matt Smith's like charisma and young Amy Pond's like confidence but like with this scene um I didn't like you're right. It is incredibly manipulative. It was very deceptive. And uh, Batman's like kind of a piece of shit for doing it. But when I was like reading it panel to panel, like in the moment, I was kind of on the edge of my seat. And like, I I guess I felt like a kid again where I just saw it and took it at face value, where it was like, no, this was the only way to do it. This like they had to set it up like this. And then like the kayfabe, like the the world you buy into of comics, like just kind of punched me in the face with like a, like a bat, you know, like it was just so intense. Like, Oh no, it had to be this way. It had to. And then to hear you explain it, it's like, Oh shit. Am I the bad guy? (laughs) It's all, well, it also just feels really incongruous with the rest of the story because Batman is constantly confused in this book. He is absolutely on the back foot from the jump. Mm-hmm. And then at this point, he has like a master plan for manipulation before immediately being confused again five minutes later. So it feels really, it feels like I, you know, I, I think Batman is a terrible person. I don't think there's anyone who would uh, really deny that. I, I think that's in the writing in all Batman stories that like he is, he is a, a symbol. He He is fighting for vengeance and to stop crime and what have you. But like, he is not a good person 
in the way that we think of it. Like that's what differentiates him from Superman, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he's very much ends justify the means. So it's not out of character for him. It just it's that this book builds him up to be um so much more sympathetic than other books have uh in that regard. And so it feels really jarring when we see him do it, when we see that even when he's at his most desperate and most confused, his brain is still able to say, how can I use a kid to manipulate the woman I love? And how can I use violence to, like, to push her out the door? And maybe it would have been less noticeable, actually, if it hadn't come right after the conversation with Alfred, uh, where where she said like where where he said you know i think a lot of you and he does too or whatever yeah because uh, that wasn't in the original books that interlude was added for the trade paperbacks yeah that it was in like wizard magazine or something right yeah that yeah it was wizard numbers but w- wizard batman zero or whatever okay um and i think that that like i don't know it it, it hung a lampshade on it a little too too uh colorfully shall we say i also think that the think of how many scars he has is very much like someone you know when you see that a fan has made a batman movie and it's always someone who has thought to themselves what is the most accurate thing that batman would have of course he would drive a tank and his suit would be really bulky and like all of these sort of technical aspects that i don't know that that like nerd culture embraces when we're having these discussions because like it is it's the clerks thing of the, the death star um and those films are always very boring because there's nothing in them that's about story it's just about showing how visually cool accuracy could be i guess Mm -hmm. and the the scars all over bruce wayne's back they felt they felt like that because part of the kayfabe is we are meant to believe that bruce wayne is a billionaire playboy who fucks a lot of women and that doesn't you don't get to have a lot of casual sex if you are covered in scars uh, <laughs> from years and years of being Batman. He has to not have that so that he doesn't have to have constant conversations with, oh, you know, I'm going to have sex with you because you're like a charming man that I've met at a party. Oh, you took your shirt off and you're you're covered head to toe in scars. We need to talk about that. Did, because yeah, I'm now... like, Did you fall in a blender? Like what happened? <laughs> Or the other possibility is Bruce Wayne always has sex while wearing a sweater. And that's way worse. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Even that, like, I can't imagine. I'm sorry if this is too graphic. I can't imagine someone like having sex with some like Bruce is built, right? Like he's got it like a great body. I can't imagine him fucking anyone and them not wanting to put their hands on his back. And so like, even if he was wearing a sweater, it's just like, why are there so many indentations? Like, why does your back feel like Braille? <laughs> so it's got it's got to come up even if he does wear a nice you know henley or a cable knit <laughs> um did you think the huntress thing was well executed no i thought i was personally very confused yep yep there was like it's really simple visual storytelling if you're going to have a person see something that isn't really happening you need to show what's really happening and then you need to show from their perspective to show that it isn't happening like like it was four small panels at the top of a page that felt crowded anyway uh and then it just it never got better from there mm-hmm. uh, like i actually i i put a post-it in the book as i was reading it 
because I genuinely thought it was just like, oh, he accidentally drew the same character twice in this panel. And it wasn't until I got to the like Batman coming in and explaining that Scarecrow did it before I was like, oh, okay, I guess that's what was happening. And we don't know who Huntress is. Batman just keeps talking about how she has low self-esteem, which I guess is very important for Batman if he's choosing women to be around him. Okay. <laughs> Jack Donaghy always knows how to fight someone. Batman knows how to manipulate women. Okay. I was I was confused both from like a narrative perspective, like what I was reading, but I was also confused what I was looking at. And then I actually had to like go back and reread just to like make sure I understood. And then I that was when I noticed like, oh, it's her fighting Huntress from like the old costume. But like I can't imagine, like we talk about this being like someone's first Batman book. I can't imagine them having an easy time uh, with that section in particular. Yeah. Yeah. Well known character Huntress. Yeah. There was a I thought a pretty insightful moment that Bruce had. Uh, when he was talking about like the Robins, like in the Batcave. And he said, Dick saw Robin as being a thrill. That's probably why he outgrew it. Jason saw being Robin as a game. That's probably what got him killed. But Tim, I have to hand it to the boy. He wants to be the world's greatest detective. And from what I've seen so far, he will be someday. And so I, I didn't think like the, the Tim stuff was that great. Cause that really didn't feel that different than in the beginning of the story when he was like barely conscious and crime alley and was watching Hunter's fight. And it's just like, she's better than she thinks she is. Yeah. You know, like, it just kind of felt like him almost writing, like, a like, like an obituary for himself, right? Like, and it's like he is survived by Huntress, who is better than she ever knew. He is survived by Tim Drake, who will be the world's greatest detective someday. Uh, but, like, I thought the idea of seeing Robin, or Dick seeing Robin as a thrill, Jason seeing it as a game, I thought that was, like, a really interesting distillation of uh, all those stories. Yeah, yeah, I I completely agree. Uh, I thought that was that was good. Um, there is actually, I think I think it was I thought it was here, but actually, I think it's much earlier in the story. Um, oh yeah, no, sorry, I I really I sh I should have remembered this during the Joker issue, um, uh, because each issue has an action figure. Um, the the bit where he's thinking about who the Joker is, and he's like. Dick explained it to me once that the Joker represents this and I represent this. And it's like, I don't think that Dick Grayson ever sat you down and gave you an analysis of the Batman storytelling, actually, Bruce. Like, I don't think he was like, hey, Batman, did you know that you're a metaphor for control and the Joker is a metaphor for chaos and the two of you <laughs> represent balance? That's, and, that's and, neat, right? Wow, that's so interesting. <laughs> I guess I have to continue putting on this fucking mask. Just ugh, it sucks. It just all sucks. Um, there are good points in this. Uh, I I I dislike Tim uh, in how he. I dislike the reveal that it's a manipulation because actually the way that Tim is talking to Batman or talking to Catwoman, it's very clear that he loves Bruce. He is in love with Bruce. Because it, it's like a, a fascination, a father figure thing, or whatever. But it's 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 there, right? Mm -hmm. And if that is scripted, that means that Batman knows it too. And once again, it becomes like incredibly abusive. Fuck yeah! <laughs> like hey hey Tim, you're a child who's in love with me. Um, let me tell you how to use that against my girlfriend. Gross. Um, 
Yeah, I don't really know if I have a, a way out of that one for for Bruce there. <laughs> Not that I feel like I need to defend him, but also it's like, oh no, like actually, like that's one interpretation, but but it could also be seen as like I I think they they hint at that in the next issue or or they they scratch a a similar point. If uh, are you ready to move yeah, on there, to six eighteen? There's the point where where Catwoman refers to says to tim like your daddy but in quotation marks to imply you know that kind of daddy is i i'm I'm not up to date is is tim one of the characters who came out as gay i think he's bisexual he's bisexual okay all right so i'm I'm glad they were foreshadowing that that long ago Mm -hmm. batman 618 came out august 27th 2003 it was the number two selling book of the month uh, sold 149,000 copies. Marvel 1602, number one, outsold it by about 3,000 units. I certainly hope that Marvel 1602 issue two did not sell it because, my God, that first issue was Dump City Garbage. Yeah, that's a book I'm going to like, I tell myself I'm going to read every year and I always fall asleep so fast during the first issue. <laughs> yep. <laughs> this chapter is called The Game. It is the penultimate chapter. Batman is confronted by a resurrected Jason Todd, the Robin who died courtesy of the Joker, a crowbar, and a bomb in the Middle East. No, seriously, that's that's what happened. Really weird story called Batman mm-hmm. Death and the Family. Holding Tim Drake as a hostage, Catwoman leaps into action and gives Bruce a chance to take out Jason. The two knock each other around in an all-out slugfest, with Jason besting Bruce more times than not, shouting, How could you let me die? You'd be amazed by the number of people who wanted to play, who were willing to risk it all for a taste of revenge. Batman still doubts that it's Jason, though, and begins fighting harder and more violently. Selina wants to get involved, but Tim stops her, saying he needs to do this on his own. And Selina says he was so mad at himself for the death of Jason in the first place. How mad is he going to be when he finds out it's not him? Jason does what all great villains do and starts revealing the things Bruce missed. When his line was cut in the beginning of the story and he fell into Crime Alley, it was cut by a battering that Jason threw. He landed in Crime Alley, both where his parents were shot and where he first met Jason, stealing the rims off the Batmobile as a teenager. Bruce realizes that all uh, all Jason has are anecdotes and histories and facts, but nothing really revealing yet. And then he overplays his hand. Uh, Jason begins melting in the rain, and it turns out it was, in fact, Clayface the whole time. Uh, he had the hint about the Lazarus pit, uh, but the pit brings you back from when you died, and there was no reason for Jason Todd to be older now. The fighting style was different, more like Dick than anyone else. With a different voice, none of it added up to the genuine article in Bruce's mind. Huntress got away because Catwoman intended to Bruce and Tim. Batman knows she's a loose end, and wherever she is running... Uh, she doesn't have sorry whoever's running this this operation against bruce doesn't have any interest in loose ends so he goes to oracle who begins asking questions bruce hadn't considered the device that bruce found in his back cave and the computer that Roz stuck with his sword could only have been installed by one person and bruce arranges a meeting with harold his old mechanic a disabled man that Bruce took in and gave care to in exchange for his work on the Batmobile and Batcave, just as he's about to reveal the person who saved him, fixed him, and gave him the ability to speak and stand up straight, he gets a shot in the head and a shot in the chest, dying instantly. The gunman is none other than the trench-coated man with a bandaged face. Fuck, it's getting a little confusing here. Richard. Incredibly. Yeah. Incredibly confusing. Uh, I knew who Harold was. Um, so I found the pages of description of who Harold was really annoying. 
just because you're like, yeah, dude, we know. Yeah. Yeah. And so I get it. This is for new readers, but it certainly wasn't. And uh, again, it's all a mess. Uh, the number of people in generic trench coats with with bandages on their face is either two or fifty, and it's very unclear at this point. I know how it ends up, what it ends up being, but like here, the other part of this is what I hadn't realized until this reread. The name Hush doesn't come up. The villain is never referred to as Hush. Correct. Yeah. All the marketing for this was like, who is Hush? Do you know who this new Batman villain is? His name is Hush, and everyone knows that. And it doesn't come up until the end of the story. Mm. I also, I wish I had the single issues. I do somewhere down in my basement. I didn't want to dig them up, so I just rented the, the digital copy off, off Hoopla. But there's like, there's no editor's notes in any of these. Like, there's no like, oh... Like uh, when it shows like Jason Todd, like as seen in Batman 475 or whatever mm-hmm. issue it was that Jason Todd died in, you know, like there's no real. I don't even want to say handholding, but there's no like allusion to a bigger world the way there there normally is in in comics. And I feel like trade paperbacks generally still have editor's notes. This not was just a point single where the, issues. They had really stopped doing that for a while, though, because um, I, I remember uh like during this era having to say to people um when they would read an older comic and they'd see an editor's note it'd be like oh yeah that was a thing they used to do in comics and they do it again now but there is like there is a five to ten year gap where they're incredibly rare and kind of almost only used by people who are like wanting to make their comic look like an old comic okay i feel like it was about to pop off because like we're on the toes of uh Brian Michael Bendis taking over Avengers and then he just layered so much stuff throughout the book that when by the time it got to Secret Invasion every issue was like a reference to a previous issue and then I feel like that's when like maybe that's why I just thought it was like much more prominent and kind of jarring that it's not here sure but if I don't know if you listen to a uh, short box summary in the episode about uh, Avengers disassembled uh, there is like there are so many moments through that where there are huge crowd scenes of unknown characters, and you had to go through and name all of them because there was no way that uh, that your your co-host, who I'm blanking on the name of right now, Fabio, Fabio, thank you. Um, uh, he there's no way he was going to know all of the people. By the way, I didn't forget Fabio's name. I forgot which person was co-hosting on that episode because mm-hmm. you had a wide range of guests through the yeah episode. yeah. He's um, uh, he just finished moving, so I think we're gonna get more regular Fabio appearances on, on oh, Short cool. Box Summary. I'm very excited. Um yeah, it's a like that should have been that should have been going on. We should have had a list of names, or like just something in the back that says he or you know, like the inside of, of Sergeant Pepper on CD has the reversal of the thing with the list of, of who the people are. Mm-hmm. Uh we could have had that in the comics, but we didn't. So right. How dare they? Uh, I, w- I will say that, like, even despite the editor's notes, um, there was, or sorry, despite the lack of editor's notes, this made me, like, this is probably the first time I really got into Wikipedia mm. was, like, 2003, 2004, because, like, I had no idea who Jason Todd was. Like, I had picked up a couple of random issues of No Man's Land and was really confused because I was eight years old and wasn't familiar with, you know, Batman Legacy or... <laughs> A cataclysm or and any of those stories but like reading hush was why i read a death in the family mm-hmm. it was just like oh that like what are all these other stories that are being referenced i just want to like understand them a little bit better uh the point you were making though about like uh tim loving batman mm-hmm. uh 
when Batman's holding Jason Todd, who's starting to melt into Clayface, Clayface has like this one line that says, I only wanted to be loved, Batman. And then Batman has a line, that was the mistake you made. Even in the end, Jason knew how much I loved him. Mm-hmm. So yeah. does that help shape your argument? Do you think stronger or put a dent in it? Um, I think that Batman the thing he said earlier about who who dick was who jason was and who tim is um batman sees tim as his successor he never saw the other robins becoming batman he sees tim as becoming the world's greatest detective which by the logical connection means he's going to be the next batman that's Mm -hmm. what he hopes um for tim to have I think Batman can justify knowing that Tim is in love with him and he can justify manipulating that because he just sees him as a continuation of himself. And of course he would love himself, Uh, which is at odds with the fact that Batman clearly hates himself and is constantly delivering his own obituary with, with the popularization of the, this would be a good death uh, Mm -hmm. as a repeated motif throughout stories since Frank Miller. Um, I had read death in the family before I read this and uh, my, my, <laughs> I might be bringing some baggage to the table here. Uh, my much older friend from when I was a teenager who really wanted me to uh, replace him in his job uh, and who manipulated my uh, desperation for approval from him to make me do terrible things um, had a he told me all about the comics of the 80s and kind of really curated which things I read. And he told me all about like the voting for whether Jason lived or died. He personally hated Jason Todd. And so he really framed it to me as if everyone hated Jason Todd because Jason Todd sucked. And so I was very confused as to why anyone would be excited that he was coming back. I read Death in the Family. It is a, it's a pretty bad comic. Like it's it's really skirting that line between trying to be serious and grown up, but also having like the joke with diplomatic community speaking at the UN. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, doesn't uh, he, doesn't he sell like a, a, a like an intercontinent, intercontinental ballistic missile to the Saudis cuz like he's like, "Well, I'm low on cash, better sell my missiles." <laughs> yeah. Uh and doing some what I will call some racist costume work. Um Oh, uh, yeah. Not a good not a good comic. But like I was just like, "Oh yeah, Jason Todd, he does seem to suck. Like he, he's pretty unbearable in this book and he's going to die. Good." So I was very confused as to why anyone would care he'd come back. I'd also recently seen Return of the Joker, where um, uh, Tim Drake almost... Where Tim Drake kills the Joker, and then the Joker comes back as Tim Drake. Uh, And that's so good that, like, the idea of death coming back in some way, this felt like a shitty version of that. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that because Batman Beyond Return that was two thousand, I think. Yeah, and then this was two thousand three. Um, also, like in twenty or so issues, like six thirty seven, I think is like when or six thirty six is like when the Judd Winnick era starts on Batman. He's there for a couple years, and then that's like under the Red Hood, and so like we actually do get Jason returning in that, and so just just a little teaser of something that like I want to bring up at the end of this, but um. Like it, it just felt messy 
and it yeah. still it still feels messy but it also like there is an air of cool about it where it is like oh this is such an epic adventure because it touches on like it, it overturns every single stone in bruce wayne's life right mm-hmm. and like oh that's really neat but then like like the concept is cool but the actual execution is just like oh man i wish it kind of wish it wasn't done this way yeah yeah all right batman 619 came out september 24th 2003 it was the number one selling book selling 235,000 copies jesus christ it outsold jla avengers by kurt busiek <laughs> and george perez by 40,000 units jesus christ like there is even if we look at like the the biggest numbers in, in in comics today, those big numbers only ever happen for issue one. There is there is no world in which in which a twelve issue arc ends with these kind of numbers and maintains that hundred and forty to one hundred and fifty thousand units across all twelve. Yeah, that is insane. Well, that and like I always I know that like number one sell really well. And that's why like issue twos are usually so expensive because every shop orders a shit ton of number ones, you know, because they know they're going to move it. Because it's like, oh, it's the start of a brand new story. But then like number issue two, like uh, underprints, because like they know not nearly as many people are going to come back for issue two. And so you're you're right. Like just the consistency of this is amazing. Let's be it's because of Jim Lee, right? I think it's also that like issue one did skyrocket in value and. It was, I mean, this is not a monthly book. It's an every four week book, which is not not something we have anymore. Like back in those days, it really was 13 issues a year was standard across a lot of titles. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just when there's so much good content happening in comics, and there really was in this era, I, I was working in a comic store and like everyone with a pull list was picking up, was coming in every week to pick up like eight to 10 issues of, of different things. Um, I think an awful lot of people were waiting for this to finish before they would read it because they knew it was going to be a huge deal. And that really contributed to this, this whole thing. Mm-hmm. I remember that by the time the third issue came out, uh, the store I was at was selling the first issue for like a hundred dollars, which was wild it also had the quickest drop off in value because i ended up i tried to like sell my issues just after the last one came out and was able to trade all 12 for a vcr in 2003 yeah nice good good call um i fuck i think that was like around the time the last vhs came out like it was an attack the clones like some some giant movie was like the last one to ever be published on on vhs yeah, I just really needed a second uh, second VCR so that I could continue uh, copying movies. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> I bought a copy of Batman 608, I think, at LA Comic Con back in like 2017, 2018. I think it was like two bucks in like a back issue bin. Yeah. Yeah, just one of those like, oh, could never have too many copies of Batman Hush. Well, it's also, I think now like, uh, unless you get your comics slabbed, they're not going to be worth money. And I also think that that's a completely shitty and stupid system because the cost of getting a comic slabbed is so high that your comic is immediately worth the cost of a slab plus whatever the comic is. So you can say, I have an $85 comic. It's like, what you mean is you have a $10 comic. Just mm-hmm. shut up. 
I have exactly one slab comic that I bought by accident because it was in a collection of other back issues I was looking for. I was trying to catch up on like the recent Donny Cates, Nick Klein, Thor run. Mm-hmm. And it was so annoying because I'm like, well, I'm not going to take it out of this because I'm not going to. So then I had to like track down like another issue six to complete <laughs> my collection. I'm like, God damn, like I don't even know where to put this thing. It doesn't fit in my short boxes. This doesn't make any sense. I have a total of two slab comics. I have uh, Blastosaurus issue zero and Blastosaurus issue one, which were both gifts from people who were like, Richard, I got your comic slabbed for you. I'm like, Great. Cool. Were they were they tens, nine point eights? What are what are you rocking? They're uh, got a nine point eight and a nine point nine. Oh damn. Mm. Yeah. I they, obviously they didn't look at the content. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. Fair. Yeah, I, I'm, wait. Just, I'm just angry at Blastosaurus for a lot of like complicated ownership reasons. It's a very oh, good but yeah, no, but if it, if it is a nine point nine, they didn't read it. You can't have that fingerprint oil on, on a book and oh, yeah. a nine point nine. That is that is true. I, anyway, I I have them both like stuck to my wall because I sort of feel obligated to. One of them signed. It feels really weird to have signed my own book. <laughs> it's like having a picture of you on your wall. Not you with someone, just you. But to have a signed book of yours that's graded on your wall. I have um. For my 30th birthday, a bunch of artists got together and did a book of portraits of me. Uh, not at my request, by the way, but it was a very touching gift. And I do have several of those, of the originals framed around my office and home. And I have one of them tattooed on my arm. So good choices made well. But you have a tattoo of yourself? Yeah. Drawn by something. God damn, it's, it's like Steve-O has a tattoo of himself on his fucking back. Mine is, uh, it's it's me as Leilani Bishop from the cover of Live Through This. So it's, I think it's a little bit cooler. Okay. <laughs> I don't know that photo of Steve, Steve doing the, his back is beautiful. <laughs> Anyways, Batman 619. The bandage tramp stamp that just says also available online at richardfairgrade.com. <laughs> I think Steve says, You rule, dude. <laughs> But it's cool because it's in like a graffiti font. Mm-hmm. Oh, mine's uh, in the Goosebumps font, obviously. Oh, clear, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. The Bandage Man. I'm just going to call him Hush. We we know what the story is. Uh, Hush quotes Aristotle as he empties his clips at Batman. Narrowly escaping, Batman runs through his head of villains who could be this new foe. Maxi Zeus, Deadshot. This person knows so much, not just about Batman, but Bruce Wayne, too. Eventually, Batman makes his boot kiss the face of the Bandage Man with a confident narration seeing that he has found his opponent at last hush is wearing the jade pendant of tommy elliott and bruce doesn't want to admit what he slowly realizes is true the bandage man is in fact tommy elliott taking revenge on bruce not because his father dr wayne couldn't save tommy's father but rather because he was able to save tommy's mother tommy had orchestrated the car crash that was supposed to kill his parents because he wanted the money and power that came with his family's wealth and prominence the Batmobile blows up and Batman is on the ropes, barely conscious. Elliot picks him up and is about to slit his throat when Jim Gordon and Harvey Dent appear, saving his life. Harvey puts two in the chest of Elliot, sending him over the bridge. They're fighting on. Harvey admits that he was the one who shot Thomas Elliot in the alleyway. And that's how he knew the Joker was innocent. But he didn't feel bad because he knew Tommy was Clayface the whole time. Harvey gets arrested. And for the first time in a while, the rain stops. Catwoman tracks down Huntress and forgives her. 
Superman combs the harbor looking for Tommy's body, but finds nothing. Bruce reveals that when he was almost dead in the beginning of the story, he thought of Tommy because of the device Harold hooked up to his computer, subliminally showing Bruce Tommy's image. Superman finds a tracking device in the back of Bruce's neck, and that's how Tommy was able to find him and send villains after him. He burns it out and then gets thanks from Bruce. This is so long. Batman realizes that the one pulling all the strings is the Riddler, who used Ra's al Ghul's Lazarus Pit to beat a terminal brain tumor. He knows Batman's secret identity now and tries to hold it over Bruce's head, but Bruce points out a riddle. Everyone knows the answer to is worthless. It's revealed that uh, they named Tommy's persona of of the bandage man Hush uh, with a generic raincoat as a joke. Something dumb and secretive. Batman knocks him the fuck out. With Selina, Bruce is about to have an intimate moment, but can't stop talking. When Selina says hush to get him to stop, Bruce freaks out, now unable to trust if their relationship is real or orchestrated by Tommy and Riddler. And that is the conclusion of Hush. In the trade paperback I have, there was an additional six-page story with a a new ending, a new addendum ending. Did your trade paperback have that? No, it does not. What happens in that? All right, so every night Bruce goes back to the bridge and jumps into the water trying to find uh, Elliot, right? And so he's looking for him, he's looking for him, and uh, can't find him. He finds a submerged boat, an old LexCorp boat that is down in the river, and it is lead-lined, which is how Superman wasn't able to find it. He goes in, he sees that uh, Dr. Thomas Elliot had dressed his own wounds in, like, the the submerged boat, but there's, like, a cabin that's, like, full of oxygen or whatever because of physics. And uh, saw that like he was able to give himself medical attention. And he's like, I wonder whatever happened to him. And then it shows Elliot like escaping, making landfall, you know, doing the whole like <laughs> thing that people always do in movies. And then uh, on land, he's met by Joker and Harley Quinn. And then the story ends. Okay. Well, I'm glad there's room for a sequel. Um, this ending's a fucking mess. I'm sorry. Like it, it, it really is. Absolutely awful. Um, the oh Jesus. I mean, here's the thing. How early in the story did you know that Tommy Elliot was going to be the villain? Um, pretty early in the story, until he was yeah. dead. And I was like, "Huh, that's weird." I really thought it was going to be him. Yeah, see, that didn't convince me at all because of how often they kept saying. And I saw him get shot, so he's definitely a hundred percent dead. Mm-hmm. I can't believe Tommy Elliot is definitely dead. Um, that was very clumsy, but it, it's the the Family Guy joke of who's going to be the killer. It's always the celebrity in the credits. Um, yeah, yeah. You have this new character show up from nowhere who shows a lot of rage issues, and we have to talk a lot about a necklace. Obviously, all these things are going to come back. Uh, Tommy's motives are just so dumb, like. I gotta wait till I'm an adult to go get revenge on the person who stopped me from sex killing mother and child. Like, just kill some other way, man. Like, you'll be fine. You didn't... He's like, I had to wait for cancer to get her. Did mm-hmm. you? Or, like, stairs. I don't know. There's, yeah. There's a lot of, There's... If you're, if you're really thinking that many moves ahead that as a child you can orchestrate a car crash... Then, uh, put something in her coffee. Just don't wait forty years to come back and and uh, exact revenge on someone else. 
Yeah, it, it's it's really weak. And so this was like the introduction of Hush. I think a couple years later, I'm pretty sure Hush had like a major run as a villain on Batman Gotham Knights, which was like a auxiliary Batman book. And I think that was by Paul Dini and Dustin Yoon, I want to say. Okay. And so he got like a bit more explanation. And I I didn't read that story, but I remember reading the reviews of that story on IGN uh, back when I used to check that every week just to make sure the books I was buying were worth it or if there was anything I I should, you know, mm-hmm. uh, have on my radar. And I remember that book getting rave reviews, but I still never read it. So I should check it out. But um, yeah, I found, that, I found this underwhelming, very underwhelming. He's not interesting because he's not like if the Riddler is orchestrating all of it, then is, is, is it ever made clear how they even got in touch with each other or why they would work together? I think it was because he went to Tommy for, op- for an operation on his brain tumor. Oh, okay. and, and then Tommy was like, you're the Riddler. Let me tell you why I hate Bruce Wayne. And he's like, hey, you're from Gotham. I'm from Gotham. And then I think there was like one line that the Riddler had where he was talking about like, yeah, he wanted to get back in touch with me. I thought it was so he could uh, talk about my miracle cure, the Lazarus pit. But uh, no, he just had a hard on for Bruce, I think were his exact words. Yeah, I remember that. I think he doesn't say hard on, though. I think he says a mad on. Oh, fuck my bad. Sorry. Is, no, I mean, it also might have just been changed for the for the trade. There are a number of typos in this book as well, which I'm, I've, I've got a very recent edition of this thing. Surely they could have fixed them by now. Mm-hmm. There is... No, look, everything about this ending is just absolute garbage. Harvey Dent just repeatedly saying i'm good now um is nothing that's absolutely nothing that's its own story that could be interesting that i'm sure has been done before and will be done again where harvey dent i don't know maybe he holds up a manila folder over his entire face this time when someone throws acid at him stupidest fucking creation of a villain ever. <laughs> uh i agree that is a masterpiece but a manila folder doesn't protect you against acid on half your face yeah um the harvey stuff was really weird i still don't understand why he was arrested if he killed fake tommy elliott who was actually clayface who wasn't dead like that part doesn't make sense to me and why was he why was he involved at all he was involved because he thought like uh because everyone got something they wanted and so like harold got uh he got his speech fixed right he got like his body fixed Mm -hmm. by elliott uh he got he was operated on by tommy Elliot. That was why he's no longer Two-Face. But then the idea was that like once he got rid of the Two-Face persona, he became Harvey Dent, who was wholly good. It was only Two-Face that was evil. Which is like the most like WWE fucking explanation I can think of. It's like, oh, Kane's only bad when he has the mask on? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I mean, to be fair, it was... Was it the Undertaker was invincible if he had a there was some kind of talisman that he had to have. I can't remember how that was. It's been a long time since I watched wrestling. Um, also, like, the implication of that is that the Two-Face, the villain side of him, was like, yes, I'll make this deal to kill myself. What a great deal I'm getting. Kill me, so that, and I will help you with this thing. Remove me from existence. Remove me from Harvey's brain with some plastic surgery. I will sacrifice myself for no personal gain whatsoever. What a great crime deal I'm doing. Mm-hmm. 
it all sucks. Yeah. Also, I, I'm Two Face. I'm gonna dress up as Hush as well. So there's two Hushes, I guess. That that I think is like the most confusing part. Like I think it's it's supposed to be clever, right? Where it's just like, oh, you you had no idea. Like we, we were right in front of you this whole time. Blah blah blah. But like I don't know if it's just. Like, would this be a better movie? I don't. Well, I mean, they did the animated movie of it. Oh fuck, uh, they I'm did. Yeah, I did. I did not see. I it. think here's here's what it needed. Have every villain be hush. Like, have have the idea of hush. I mean, and this is this is pre Court of Owls, so you could still have done a cool secret society type thing or a cool mystery of like a conspiracy mystery thing. Uh, Court of Owls is the worst thing that's ever happened to Batman. I don't care if the original. I agree. Oh my god, you're the first person I've ever met who agrees. I hate it, and every time I'm like reading something, and like Court of Owls starts coming up, I'm like, why does it have to be in this version as well? Like the the uh, continued like the continued uh, Batman Adventures based on the animated series is now a Court of Owls book. It's like just stop, stop rehashing this bullshit. There's a um. Whichever whichever animated movie does some quarter of house thing in it, uh, is it's one of the worst storytelling I've ever seen. There is a flashback in which Alfred tells Damien a story, so it literally creates a flashback within a flashback. Someone remembers being told a story one time. <laughs> oh, that's not great. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, no, Court of Owls sucks. It sucked in Gotham, it sucks in comics, it sucks in everything. But what you could have done is, like, there's a new villain in town. He's calling himself Hush. Who is Hush? Why do I keep hearing Hush everywhere? Why is why is the word Hush so, so prevalent? Which would have also made, like, the payoff of Catwoman saying Hush feel much better in a... I guess it's a little bit Captain America saying Hail Hydra, but it's still... It's still something, right? And then you have the unravel- unraveling of the bandages uh, at like the end of issue one. Have someone unwrap the bandages and reveal that it's poison ivy, and they're like, "Oh my god, I guess poison ivy is hush." That's really weird. I'm confused as to why this is happening. And then end of second issue, have a different villain unwrap bandages and re- reveal, "Oh, actually, I was hush all along." Um, and then you realize that it is this huge conspiracy of all of them working together. Uh, for this thing that Tommy Elliot is is has contrived, mm-hmm. keep Tommy Elliot in the story in a far more present way, so that we're not just dropping him in to be um, a, a, a a villain later on. Have him actually matter to the story. Have him show up. Have him be in a desperate situation where Bruce trusts him so much because they were childhood friends that he actually reveals to him that he was that he's Batman. Have Bruce do that reveal himself, which then can be mirrored with the reveal to Selena of like, why do you trust? Or like Alfred can say, why do you trust a, a, a boy you used to fight with when you were 10, but you trust the woman who you've known all of this time? The actual amount of time you spent with Catwoman is certainly more than you've ever spent with Tommy Elliott. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have, I'm going to rewrite the whole book here. Um, <laughs> have like Have that be the emotional crux of the story and then have... Tommy Elliot in the Batcave helping Batman figure it out while manipulating it all the way through to eventually reveal that he is hush at the end of like like after Jason Todd is revealed to be Clayface, which I think none of that needed to happen. They just wanted to sell some books by pretending Jason Todd was back. Mm-hmm. Um 
And, you know, Hush's power is manipulation. Hush's power is being a secret. Batman's power is being a symbol, a symbol that is present, that is being spray painted on the walls by, by Cassandra Kane during No Man's Land. Like, it, it matters, right? And so Hush would be the opposite of that. They could have created an amazing villain who was about secrecy and that you can never know where Hush will be, whereas you always know where Batman is because it matters that there is the bat signal going up into the into the clouds. This would have been an awesome book. Um, all right, get at me, DC. Let me rewrite Hush for you. We will need a time machine because I do need to undo this garbage. So can I tell you my theory on why this book is not good? I think you just did. Um, but before well, we get into the theory, I, I want you to, we talked about it a little bit last episode and you mentioned it a bit at the top of this one. Is this a good first Batman book for someone? No, no, it's not. Okay. Do you, do you think it is? I think it is because it provides more questions than answers. And so if you get the right kind of person to read it early on in their comic book going career, you're just like, oh, wait, what's Ra's al Ghul's deal? And then you're just going to fall down that rabbit hole. Like, it's just like, it. it's just, you think you're opening up a door to a room, but you're just opening up a door to a hallway with 10 more doors, you know? Sure, but that would be true if, if any of the villains had been um, explored in interesting ways or shown to be anything other than a list of facts. Yeah, but I think you're also overlooking just a lot of these characters looked cool. And like, sometimes that's enough. Yeah. I, you know, guess. Like, I, I think Ra's al Ghul looked cool fighting with a sword in the desert. Do you think um, do you think when Jeff Loeb first wrote this he knew that Jim Lee was going to be the artist? I don't know. I uh, forget. Did we talk about this last night in the space that like if this was like a Tim Sale book? No. Um, like was this supposed to be like another like Dark Victory Long Halloween-esque story? That would make a lot of sense. Like my theory on why the book is, doesn't work is I think it was it's very uh, there's a lot of editorial input in it. There has to be because you get Jeff Loeb writing. Uh, he writes a story. It's a story that is fundamentally about Batman being pushed to his absolute limit and then uh, having to somehow come back from it. And none of that works for a first Batman story for anyone, because you don't actually know what Batman's like, what is being taken away from Batman here? What is out of character for Batman here? That is, that is a complete mystery to a new reader. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's working in opposition to itself. You get Jim Lee come on board as a, as, as the artist, obviously they know they're going to do big numbers. And I think they go back to Jeff Loeb and they say, you need to over explain every single thing in this because this is no longer for dedicated Batman fans. This is for new people. You look at how much text there is on so many of the pages and how much of Jim Lee's genuinely quite beautiful art is covered by text and word balloons that are often very hard to follow because they're trying to cram in so much information. The font size changes at different points and not just for like impact of, of volume, but like literally to fit things in on certain pages. That Riddler page takes about an hour and a half to read and i don't want to get into page turns but like when you've got a big shot of the riddler sitting in a weird way with a big grin on the facing page it's not actually a reveal who batman is talking to like they want it to be mm-hmm. um maybe that was different with like ad placement in the book or something in the in the issues but it, it really didn't work reading it in the trade um 
I think that all of the stuff about Huntress could have happened without ever needing to like tell us about how Huntress feels about herself. Everything about Catwoman could have been done without having to uh, like all of the internal monologue could be cut. If this was a book for people who already know Batman, you could cut all of that and replace it with like one tenth of the amount of text and, uh, and just have it be about Batman realizing he's losing things realizing and I mean, maybe you can hit the heavy marks of like i'm losing things just like that time i lost jason because of how he died uh and it can be a little nod to that but it i don't know this 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 felt warmed over and it felt like there were so many people coming in and saying we need to make sure everyone understands all of this and it undercuts the story at every turn that's i think that's really fair and uh to go back and like defend well, I think it is a good first story. It, you know, have you seen commercials for like Disney World or Disneyland where it's just like a kid is like standing in like downtown Disney and then all of a sudden like Kylo Ren walks by with like six stormtroopers yeah. or whatever? It yeah. feels kind of like that version of of these characters where like you get Joker, Joker shows up, an incredibly important character for, for Batman, right? He like literally mm-hmm. just gets there to get the shit kicked out of him he all he says is like i'm innocent i swear and then he just like is losing teeth for the rest of the fucking issue it's just batman beating him to to piss and it's like literally just to see if batman will kill him like that's the Mm -hmm. only reason he's there because like if you can't kill joker like he's gonna kill penguin no but like joker like we could justify killing joker and so this really does feel just like baby's first joker's appearance baby's first Baby's first Ra's al Ghul, Baby's first Killer Croc, Baby's first whatever. The only characters that I think are given more attention are Catwoman, and I guess, I guess that's it. Like I don't even think Tommy's given that much attention. I think Harold is, but uh, to your point, it was boring because you already knew who the character was. Uh, like I just don't think we really explore anything, and so I think it's good in the sense that like it gets a reader curious about what else is out there. And it does so in a pretty good looking way. Thanks to Jim Lee. And I agree that like the back half is so overridden, especially compared to the first half. And so I feel like that's where you're going to start to lose people. And it was just so proud of like this intricate web that it created about like, Oh, it's actually Riddler pulling the strings the entire time. And there's like that one page where it's just like, so why did Poison Ivy? It's like, oh, she likes money and she has a thing for Catwoman. Why kill her mm-hmm. croc? Oh, we mutated him. It's actually really simple. Uh, we told him he needed surgery, but we just gave him an antidote. You know, that's all it took. Like, yeah. they were just so happy with like the reveal, like the turn of of the trick where it was like, you kind of see like how flimsy it was by the end of it. And so I think it's good that it happens in the last six pages of the story and that you can move on to something else quickly after okay so maybe it's not a good first batman story but it's a good first batman comic because we we need to then like think about what do people know about batman as a normal amount to know about batman what does everyone know Mm -hmm. and i think you're right here because everyone knows who the joker is everyone knows like mark hamill's joker and so this becomes like a uh, look, you know who you know who we're dealing with. You know the things he does. He's kind of the worst of the bad guys. But now you're going to see him like 
properly extreme Batman really hates him. I'm going to drop in this information that he has done real murders to named characters in cold blood. Um, welcome to grown up Joker. Here's your first comic. Welcome to grown up Harley. Welcome to grown up Poison Ivy. Um, we do establish what her powers are. We do establish what, you know, whatever is uh, killer. Like, yeah, yeah, you're right. It is. It's, I'm trying to think what else do people all know? I mean, people know who 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 Rachel Ghoul is a little bit. People know who people know that like Batman and Catwoman want to fuck. Uh we just don't know that they like I, I think if, if you're coming if they to, have or not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although Talia does make the very solid point that clearly you have never made love with him. Um interesting choice to use the word with there. Like not a bad choice, just an interesting choice that it wasn't it wasn't like made love to him, to, which yeah. is how most people would phrase it, but also like it shows that Talia thinks of him as her equal. Which I think is like see, there are these good bits of subtle writing in there. Mm-hmm. Like there really are these good things that make you feel like you're reading for a second you're reading Long Halloween again. There's also there are some like kind of comic booky moments too. Uh, like specifically that at that issue we were just talking about with with Talia, like they talk about like President Luther, like oh should we do something about? It? He's just like no, not yet. And then like in the end when Joker or not Joker, sorry, when Riddler saying like oh yeah, you've got friends in high places. Mm. Uh, he's like specifically referring to Lex Luthor, and like this is coming in an upcoming Jeff Loeb book called Superman Batman or Batman Superman whatever it was called, but like written by Jeff Loeb, drawn by Ed McGinnis, and that's where. Lex Luthor president puts like a ban basically on Batman and superheroes specifically and like just sticks all these villains off. So like there was kind of like weird seed planting in this story that played out on a DC scale. But like this doesn't feel like a DC book. This feels like such a Batman centric book. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what DC books were at this point. Right. It was was awesome. (laughs) Like that level of editorial organization I find really impressive. I still think that like Infinite Crisis and everything they accomplished in that story is like one of the smoothest landings i've ever seen from any big event in the last 20 years yeah i mean this is this is back in the days when there would be the bat summit every year and all the batman writers would get together and it's also where like a lot of the very like problematic discussions around batman and the side characters started coming out and being revealed by by writers Mm -hmm. in kind of public ways um if anyone listening hasn't looked up the uh video of dylan horrocks on a panel at a convention talking about the bat summit it's very worthwhile um have you seen that i have not no um he was writing batgirl and he he talks about all of these middle-aged men gleefully discussing like the best way to kill spoiler uh, and he, he was like, this is the grossest thing in the world to be a part of as they're all like doing their brainstorming on this whiteboard of how do we kill this teenage girl uh, and how brutally like taking joy in how brutally they could do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he actually wrote he wrote a script. He t- he's talked about it very publicly that he wrote a script for his final issue of Batgirl that was um, Cassie Kane in a in a bar talking to her friend about how to get out of an abusive relationship and her friend is barbara gordon and it's all the women of the bat family realizing that like none of them escaped bruce 
and they have to help her get out before it like before she becomes them and it's it's good it's a good idea like he's told me about it in great detail it sounds like it would have been an amazing comic um you know because and it would have kind of been a a sort of a mirroring of that really fantastic issue he did where she goes and puts on the Barbara Gordon costume for one night and has like a fun time being Batgirl as opposed to it being like a miserable, awful time where she just gets the shit kicked out of her. Bam, I'll have to check that out. I love that Batgirl series so much. Like, I think the first like 40 issues with like, was it Scott McDaniel as like the original yeah. artist? Like that's one of my favorite comic book runs of all time. It's so good. But I think I think you're right. I think that like this is this is letting people know some stuff and it's setting up some stuff and what have you. But it it just Jeff Loeb had a really cool story that he wanted to tell about what it looks like when Batman is pushed to the edge. And we never got to see it happen because there wasn't room for it. It's also kind of simplistically told like are how familiar are you with like the games of uh, like Batman games like Arkham Asylum and all that stuff? Oh, not even a little bit. Not even a little bit. All right. So the game came out in 2009, I want to say, like August. I think it was like right before I went back to the sophomore year of college. And uh, it had Kevin Conroy voicing Batman and Mark Hamill voicing the Joker. And um, I cannot remember the name of the woman who voiced Harley Quinn. I feel bad now. Um, but it had her. It had like basically the original cast of Batman the Animated Series. So like it felt just like a like a maturation of Batman the Animated Series. I'm trying right? to remember I'm trying to remember who voices Harley Quinn now as well. Fuck. Yeah, I feel like a bad fan, bad nerd. Um, is it? But it's not. It's not Tara Strong, is it? Oh, it might be. Yeah, that feels right. Yeah, she, she was sort of in everything at that point. I think it might. Yeah, be. I think you're right. Um, but like that just felt like a a graduation of Batman the Animated Series, right? Because it was it was brutal. It was like you could feel the the momentum and every punch Batman delivered on a person from a insane asylum which you know it's not great but uh was, was this the was this the game where they redesigned harley quinn to be like sort of distressed uh blonde hair everywhere and a big yeah and like a nurse's outfit right 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 and like that was uh, you know i i don't know the game but i know what it was like to be at conventions that year mm -hmm. yeah actually i saw a bunch i went to montreal comic-con that year and saw quite a few Harley Quinns in, in the new getup where it was basically just like a nurse's outfit with like leather stockings at that point. Um, this almost feels like it could be in the same Batman animated series universe, right? Like it feels like what they're going for is such like a, a universal omnipresent Batman story that like it ultimately just doesn't, doesn't serve any one point particularly well. And again, I think it's, a pretty book more often than not i think it's got a lot of interesting ideas and i think it was obviously really important not just for sales but just for the growing up of batman at a certain point right like this felt like the first like 21st century batman story for better and for worse yeah i mean i think that bruce wayne murderer sucks uh and like no, it doesn't even suck. Like, there's some good mystery elements to it, but like by and large, they tried to make it a big event, and there was nothing special about it. Mm -hmm. This was their way of saying, "Look, we're gonna get good people. We're sorry, um, or we're gonna get like a huge name artist. We're sorry." Uh, I think No Man's Land is great. I love No Man's Land. I think it's such a fun five volumes. Um, I do not like the ones before. I do not like Contagion. I do not like Evolution, but 
No Man's Land was great. It feels so much more complete than Hush. And yeah, they had five volumes to do it, but still, like, yeah. they told a bigger story better. Uh, I don't think this would have been made better by being long. I agree. Uh, it's, so uh, right. it's trying to be everything, and it's, instead, it's nothing. Closing, closing thoughts on on Hush. I I think it's still worth a read, but I think, you know, how they talk about like beer goggles, about how like ideas and people seem better when you're a little drunk. Mm-hmm. Like I think this story has beer goggles. I think it's got Jeff Loeb's name on it. I think it's got Jim Jim Lee's pencils on it. Those beautiful Scott Williams inks and Alex and Claire colors. Like there's a lot to like about this book. Sorry, Richard Starking on letters too. And like you know, there's something really powerful too about like a five worded fragment sentence that Jeff Loeb ends with an ellipses to then complete on the next page with like a, a Jim Lee splash. Like there is something like inherently cool and, and fun about that. And I don't want to be like, just turn your brain off when you read the story. But I do think that this is a story that uh, gets overlooked critically a lot. And I think if you're listening to this podcast and you made it this far, thank you. That's really cool. I'm not telling you to not read this book, but I'm telling you to read this book and have a, uh, an open mind to the criticisms we've leveled against it. There are parts in this book that are really beautiful. There really are. And like, it just, the pacing feels weird because of my theory of being so editorialized. Um, I think that there are weird, uh, you know, double page spreads in it. that are kind of dotted throughout that just feel like someone saying like, please, can we just let Jim Lee have some room to draw? Because there's a lot of times in this where just all of the art is covered. Mm-hmm. Richard, on the last episode, we talked about the the, uh, the movies and songs that came out uh, when this story first appeared in October of 2002. Are you ready to talk before, about... Oh, Before we do, can I ask you one thing? Yeah, please. About the comic still. Uh at the end of it, he says, I was hoping Harold was Clayface as well, but no, it's really just Harold. And he looks, and the proof seems to be that Harold is continuing to bleed. Tommy Elliot was Clayface and was bleeding out everywhere for a really long time, mm-hmm. which was Clayface becoming blood? Oh, I didn't even think about that. Like What's what's weird is, the, the weirder part to me isn't that he was, like, bleeding or whatever, but it was that he was Clayface in the rain when he was Tommy Elliot and he didn't melt into Clayface. But then when he's like fighting Batman as Jason Todd, that's when he starts like melting. And like, I don't know if he did that just to escape getting his ass kicked by Batman or if it was like actually just too much for him because he was getting his ass kicked so much that, yeah, like he started to break apart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, back back to movies and, and music. Back to movies, music, and other comics from uh, the time. So we covered everything from, uh, I believe it was September 2002. The story came to a close in uh, April. Is that right? No, I lied. I lied to you. The story finished a year later uh, in September 2003. So let's talk about those movies. Uh, number one at the box office was The Rundown. That was the uh, the Rock and Sean William Scott action comedy. Huh where Sean William Scott is uh I think like a gangster's kid like I think it's um I think it's oh my god what's the Christopher Walken's kid that the rock is not hired to go recover from South America and it was a comedy yeah action comedy I actually think that movie's kind of fun I I got a soft spot for Sean William Scott 
I miss the days when we could have like proper action comedies that weren't um, Ryan Reynolds trying to be cool. It's been a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I know the hitman's bodyguard. Yeah. Whatever. I'm sorry. How is that man? How, how, (laughs) how do people like it's it's worse. The wrong Canadian blew up. I like him. I think he's charming, but I also got married on a plantation. Oh yeah, he has he has apologized for that a lot. I know. Not Owned that a cell phone that... company, got married in a plantation, but he's so adorable with his fun Instagram arguments with his wife. <laughs> I still can't believe he was like engaged to Alanis Morissette for so long. I'm like, I'm convinced that that song "Hands Clean" is written about him. Mm. Mm. Well, they are the only two people in Canada. They had to find each other. It's true. Well, that and wasn't she also engaged to is it Jeff Coulier, like the guy from uh, Dave Dave Coulier, Coulier Dave yeah. Coulier. Yeah, because everyone thinks that's what you want to know is about. That's pretty funny. Um, number two at the box office. <laughs> Under the Tuscan Sun, that is the Bruce Willis-led uh, action movie in Africa, directed, I want to say, by Antoine Fuqua. That would not have been even close to what I guessed that film was about. I thought Under the... Uh, what am I confusing it oh with? Oh my god, no. Under the Tuscan Sun... Fuck, you're right. Okay, I was thinking Tears of the Sun, which is the Bruce Willis action movie. This is a film about... I'm like an idiot. This is the Diane Tuscany. Lane movie where she buys a fucking house in Tuscany. I'm a moron. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Uh, This movie's okay. Yeah. I, 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 I want to like it more than I do. Um... Sandra O's in it. She's really good in this movie as a supporting character. So, yeah, this was this was that point where like we were starting to get movies like this, um, not not the same as this, but like movies that were actually being uh, marketed toward uh, older women as as an audience that had never really been marketed to before. Mm-hmm. Which was honestly, I really, I can absolutely enjoy those movies, and I will rewatch those movies far more often than I will watch a film that is marketed to me, um, because I just find them very relaxing. Yeah, you could tell that this was that era because Richard Gere was still getting a lot of work cast as romantic leads, which was such like a late '90s, early 2000s mom yeah. fixation. Richard Gere, although he was also in uh, Autumn in New York, which is the worst film I've ever sat through. Yeah, it feels right. Uh, number three at the box office, Underworld, the Kate Beckinsale oh. werewolf movie. Yeah. Wow, that is that franchise still going? I want to say yes. It feels like every four years we just get a random one. I don't know if Kate Beckinsale is still in them, but I, is I feel she in like anything else. She's in she's in tabloids with Pete Davidson a year or two yeah. ago. Yeah, that's true. Number. Number, yeah, good for her. Number four is a movie I've seen so many times because the bus I would take from my part of Maine down to Boston, they would have like DVD players and, and VCRs, and they would always play this movie because it was so family appropriate. That's uh, a movie called Secondhand Lions. Never even heard of that. About a kid who stays with his grandparents on a farm and like finds treasures or something. I don't know. I've never seen it with audio, but I've seen the movie a lot. Um <laughs> Was was this kind of the last of those uh, like genreless films that just got put in the family section? I think so. Yeah, missed that. And before they slowly all just became animated. Yeah, or like before they started, uh, before they had to like find a genre to exist within, so they could be more easily understood. So we started getting horror for kids and romance for kids and mm-hmm. whatever else for kids. 
Um, yeah, this one was just like a period piece for kids. Yeah, and I, I would I you know like my my favorite films growing up, which are still my favorite ones now, like Adventures in Babysitting, Sandlot. These are wonderful, and I will I will I will die on that hill. Um, but you couldn't class you couldn't you couldn't classify them in any genre other than appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> Is the Sandlot a sports movie? I mean, kind of like it is about kids who play baseball, but it's mostly about kids trying to get a baseball back from a scary dog. Yeah, so it's kind of a horror movie, right? Well, it's, it's like a kid's like most sensitized, desensitized horror movie. Well, it's it's got a I mean, the dog is a is a big dog, but it's a lot of like, let's make contraptions in our treehouse and try and like get the kid. It's it's, it's a coming of age kids movie about finding friends it's an engineering movie also yeah thanks squeeze yeah <laughs> and uh number five was duplex which was a movie i didn't see but it was on showtime all the time when i was in eighth grade and uh that was ben stiller and drew barrymore who i think buy one half of a duplex and hate their neighbor so much they try to sabotage that person out so that they can <laughs> buy the other half of the duplex okay again this is that that thing that can be done as a subplot in a 30 rock episode uh but used to require an entire movie in the way that like not to shit on silence of the lambs because i think it's an absolute masterpiece of a film but like the plot of silence of the lambs can now be done in a single episode of csi wait it was done in a 30 rock episode wasn't this when liz lemon tries yeah. to get like her gay cop neighbor to move out of like the co-op so she can buy the upstairs <laughs> yeah and eventually just ends up like pissing on the flowers to get him to like, <laughs> Yeah. All right. You ready? Uh, for no, the... I guess Ben still needed a whole movie. <laughs> you ready for the songs? Yeah. All right. This is a very, very specific era of, of of music for me. This was very much like middle school dances. By the uh, way, the... I had seen none of those movies. Um, I'm still so embarrassed about Under the Tuscan Sun and Tears of the Sun. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, All right. Number one song, according to Billboard Hot 100 for the week of September 26th, was Shake Your Tell Feather by Nelly, P. Diddy, and Murphy Lee. Interesting. Nelly was in the, in the top five at the beginning of Hush as well. So he was, yeah. Pretty good. Number two was Baby Boy by Beyonce and Sean Paul. You like that one, right? Don't know it. Okay. <laughs> You're going to love listening back to these episodes where I drop in 10 seconds of the chorus. <laughs> And but here's the thing: I will probably know those. You know, I, like I will go, "Oh, that one." Okay, mm. I never know the titles of anything. Right. Number three was "Right There" by Chingy. Number four. Was, I did know. You did know that one. Yeah, I do know that one. <laughs> Number four was Get Low by Lil John, the East Side Boys featuring Wu Tang. Get low, get low, get low, get low. 
No, no idea. Okay. And number five was Into You by Fabulous and featuring Tamia or Ashanti. I don't know what the or is. Like, I don't know if there's like two versions of that song or if Tamia and Ashanti are the same person and there was a name change. I did not do my research, but I, I've never seen that before in Billboard Hot 100 website where it says, oh yeah, it's either Tamia or Ashanti. We'll see. Yeah, well, and see, this comes back to a conversation from last week of like, maybe it was just on Napster and it was mislabeled. <laughs> <laughs> Someone at Billboard was just downloading it being like, I don't know which one it's meant to be. I will say... I haven't even heard of those people. Ashanti? Like, I vaguely know that name. Vaguely? But I couldn't tell you anything. Okay. Yeah. No, it, it turns out maybe maybe I was out of touch with music by 2003. Uh, she was a pretty big like pop and R&B singer in the late 90s, early 2000s. Okay. I, I'd... Um... I've been really cool with music when I was 12 and then I got really uh really uncool with music pretty soon after that and was just mostly into Marilyn Manson the Cure and Hole and then very into Marcy Playground. So, you know. Yeah, you're we we were all going through phases, you're going through a very specific phase. <laughs> <laughs> um are you ready for the top 10 comics of yes. the month of September 2003? All right. Spoil the first two. Batman 619 was the number one selling book with 235,000 units sold. Also, I figured out why so many of these books sold so much, too, is because there was uh, two covers by Jim Lee. So, like, this one has one cover that's, like, all the heroes. I think it's, like, a gatefold. Right. Where it would, like, peel out. So you'd have Tim and Nightwing and Batman and Oracle and Catwoman and blah, blah, blah. And then there was also a villain's cover. Yeah. And so I can't remember, but I feel like a lot of the other issues also probably had two covers. Number two was JLA Avengers, the Kurt Busiek and George Perez book, uh, 191,000 units. Number three was Marvel 1602 issue two, 133,000 units. Number four was Ultimate Six, the big Spider-Man event for the Ultimate Universe. Number one, uh, that moved 132,000 units. Number seven was Ultimate X-Men 37 moved to 109,000 units. I want to say that that's around when Brian Michael Bendis came back for a story called Return of the King, but I cannot remember. Number eight was New X-Men 146. It moved to 106,000 units. That was, I think, we had like eight more issues to go on the Grant Morrison run. Uh That was where I started losing interest in that book. Oh man, the last four issues are so good though. Like 150 on, like uh, Bring On Tomorrow, whatever that story is called. I thought that shit was so good. Uh, Here Comes Tomorrow, I think is what it's called. Number seven, Ultimate Spider-Man 46, 106,000 units also. Number eight, Batman, Superman Batman number two. That was like the series I was hinting at that Jeff Loeb was also writing at the time. And then, uh, sorry, that moved 105,000 units. And then number 10, New X-Men, number 145, moved 101,000 units. So all the top 10 books sold over 100,000 units. Jesus. 
And yeah. the with Superman Batman, that's like the that's the public enemies story arc, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's where they uh I think like that's sort of the point where it becomes about it hasn't become about because the first six are, are is public enemies, and then there's that one shot for number seven, uh which I wanna say Jay Lee does the art for, and it's like a beautiful, beautiful issue. Uh and then it goes back to being not a very good book after that. After that is when Michael Turner comes on and does the Supergirl story. <clears throat> I love Michael Turner, man. I'm I on. hate that story. I get that, but I didn't know what was good back then. That's why I did this podcast to figure out if it was good or if I was 15. Um, <laughs> and I loved that at the time. I thought it was like the prettiest thing I'd ever seen. I thought Michael Turner was amazing. I still think he's pretty amazing. Um Every unit, every book until book number 30 sold over 50,000 units. So. Wow. <laughs> wow. We don't get down to 20,000 units until 112. That was when we start going into teens of books being moved. Or is now would be at that by about number five, right? Uh, probably, yeah. And like, if books get down to like ten thousand units now, like that's usually or fifteen thousand. I feel like that's when they get canceled by Marvel. It's interesting because, like, for a for an, uh, a smaller company selling seven thousand copies is considered huge. Mm-hmm. It's it's oh. wild what that gap still is. I went on a podcast recently. I went on Last Comic Shop to talk about uh, Asterios Polyp by David Mazzucchelli. Mm-hmm. I'd never read it before. It's like one of the best graphic things i've ever read like one of the best pieces of art i've ever consumed was that story and uh, it was really eye-opening because like i did this i crunched numbers like went on comic ron did did my research and like i think the first indie book was a dark horse book so and it wasn't even indie because it was buffy the vampire slayer but that was like the number 29 best-selling book that was the first non-dc non-marvel book to appear on the charts and then like the boys was like selling where is it i got that right here the boys uh, was the 78th best-selling book of that month, and it sold 25,000 units. Wow. Wow. Okay. And Asterius Polyp was selling... Asterius Polyp came out, it was the 72nd highest grossing uh, graphic novel that released July 2009, and it sold 1,467 copies. I mean, that's really normal for a graphic novel nowadays. Like, that's very, even, even I mean, it's not normal for a, a DC or Marvel one, but like, I think the the collected edition of something, they're, they're often expecting, if it doesn't make it into the bookstore market, they're expecting to sell a couple of thousand copies at the most of like most of the things that I think we, we both think of as kind of filler material. Um, wow. Also, the the kind of cultural impact that Asterius Polyp has had. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just like within the comic creator community, people talk about it. Maybe it didn't make it out into the zeitgeist in any other form. But to me, I would I would put that up with, there with the things that people know about in the same way that they know about Fun Home or Ghost World or things of that nature. Black Hole. Yeah. 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 Man. I had never heard of it before. I read it in like two sittings yesterday again it's like i can't stress this enough it's like one of the best things i've ever read i thought it was absolutely incredible how was the uh the boomerang effect of going from hush to that back to hush 
it felt weird. Like it, it definitely, I don't want to sound like snooty when I say this, but like, it definitely made Hush feel like a product and that feel like a story, you know, yeah. like not, not to sound too up my own ass about it, but like, that was like, everything was so thoughtfully executed in a serious polyp. And yeah. then it really did feel like, and I don't mean this disrespectfully to Jeff Loeb. I do think he's written really good books, but it really did just feel like reaching into a, a drawer, pulling out an action figure and then just like smashing it against the action figure that's already in your hand. Like that's kind of yeah. on a surface level, I think what Hush kind of is. And like, there are moments I really like, again, I'm not trying to shit on this book outright, but um, it did feel brand driven as opposed to Serious Polyp, which felt truth driven, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just, it's it's more art than commerce, which is borne out in the sales. Mm-hmm. Which is a shame, but I also think that that book has a, a much longer shelf life than Hush. Oh, for sure. It ran, it won so many awards. I had no idea just how, like, universally loved it was. It was just not universally read, unfortunately. But, you know, this this is the thing of, again, I'm not comparing myself or the level I'm at to these things, but... um. You know, I did Blastosaurus for 13 years. Uh, it sold thousands of copies. It had a really strong online readership. Um, it There are multiple volumes from, from different small publishers and the, the main volume done by me through Square Planet. Uh, and again, I just did it for a really long time. And it stopped maybe two years ago now. And I made a reference to it on Twitter this week and someone who was in comics journalism who sort of has their finger on the pulse of these things saw the cover and went, oh my God, what's Blastosaurus? And I was like, yeah, if you don't, if you don't know about it, you just don't know about it. If you've never seen it, you just, you, there, there, we really do live in an age where you can just miss something entirely in a way that when there was less content in the world, you couldn't. Mm-hmm. There's so many fewer shared experiences. Mm. Richard, I can't think of a better place to end than that, unless you've got anything you want to add. No, that's everything for me. All right. Well, this was fun. Thank you so much for talking out about Batman, man. It was was a lot of fun. It was nice doing something different. Nice changing it up from from Marvel. And uh, nice being critical. This is the point of the show, is again, to go back and figure out if it was good or if I was 15. Now, I, I haven't made it through every episode yet, and I've also spent hundreds of dollars this week on comics because of your enthusiasm. Um, did manage to buy a lot of Daredevil books in Spanish and return them. Uh, <laughs> that worked out well. Um, have you covered Alias yet? I have not. I've been trying to get my friend Mary to cover Alias, but okay. um, if if something doesn't work out with her, um, would you be interested in covering Alias? Is that a yeah? I really, really like Alias, and I feel like I came in pretty negative on Hush because of its quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it's it, yeah, it's been incredibly fun dorking out about comics, and I would like to talk about a comic I like. And Alias was the first one that sprung to mind, but I'll, I'll think and can find something. Ooh, look at that! I have the I have the big like single volume thing by the way you know how cheap you can buy alias art for how cheap it's like 120 bucks a page online oh really yeah oh my god why are you doing that right now yeah why are we recording this stupid podcast when you could be <laughs> making bids <laughs> um yeah i would love to cover this book i think it's fascinating and like it's like the missing link between the wire and comic books <laughs> i think you know like that hbo nine o'clock on a sunday primetime shit um 
are you interested in going outside of the the mainstream stuff at all i i'm definitely gonna need some breaks i think i'm gonna like hammer towards house of m and call that the end of season one and then take a little break and do some different shit for a bit and then get back into season two i want to do like a deep dive on bone i could do that yeah that's a fun book that i haven't read in a long time yeah all right well let's not let's not give away all of our secrets right now. <laughs> sure. also well, i mean we should we gotta let people know to start reading bone because that is a that's an epic that's a, a lot of issues yeah it's, it's what 1200 pages i think so in a single fucking volume now <laughs> i don't like books that big man no neither the, do i the spine always breaks that's why like you have like the big collection that's why I, I like went out of my way to buy the thinnest possible trades i could of alias just i'm like no yeah i, re- yeah, I bought I, the uh, omnibus of new x-men the grant morrison shit and like that spine broke like in the first day i have never read an absolute edition of anything since league of Extraordinary gentlemen because that came as two books two nice thin books yeah were just really big all right they don't need to know the sauce just made. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Richard on Twitter at Richard Fairgrave. If you're hearing this, uh, I, your Kickstarter might still be going on when this goes up next week. Is it still going yeah. on? Yeah, it'll be going for another almost three weeks. All right, cool. Uh, check out kickrichard.com and help support Richard's new project, uh, Octopus, a memoir of flailing. And uh, please follow Purplebird616 on Twitter. We talk about comics, we get in spaces, and I learn a lot about the indie industry thanks to Richard and Stokes and, and Chris Moses and Pat Shand and all these all these cool people making cool things. And it is very insightful and, and very educational. So I recommend being there. Also, we get very drunk and tell weird stories about strip clubs. So it's a lot of fun for whatever your inclination is. It's a, it's a lot of fun until you hit that 2 a.m. mark and then Richard's just kind of a little bit faded. Starts talking about the confidence, that. like the way you pour drinks into your glass, I can hear you. And like, I just Im- imagine you having like a little bit of a sachet when you do it. And then <laughs> when I pour wine afterwards, I have a little bit of a sachet when I do it. Cause I'm like, I just want to have as much fun as I imagine Richard's having right now. So it's like we're drinking together. It's nice. It is. It's very social. Yeah. Have, right, yeah. Have yourselves a good uh, weekend. Enjoy the episode and please look to Shortbox Summer next Friday. I'm not sure what we're talking about, but it's going to be fucking radical. You're going to love it. Bye.